What's happening, everybody? Welcome to Nick's Nonfiction. Thank you all for tuning back in. This is our third ever edition, and for the month of March 2019, we have read, interpreted, summarized, and broken down for you in the most entertaining way possible David Graeber's Bullshit Jobs, an international bestseller. This book written in 2018, extremely topical. It doesn't get much newer than this. I have this book memorized down to the gills we're going to be going over quotes of mr graber dissecting his entire interpretation of you know we live in a society we're humans we could live like animals and do whatever we want but we play these parts and follow these rules every single day and david is dissecting how many parts of this play that we put on are actually bullshit so there is some serious stuff in here um i will give a bit of a disclaimer coming up but as for the state of the show there's going to be a couple updates. We are always improving here on Nick's Nonfiction. Welcome back. Welcome to any newcomers. I've been trimming the fat, listening back as I have to while making the YouTube videos and everything. Go check that out if you haven't. Just finding ways we can improve. Remember the this past month? Gonzo. We're not doing that section anymore. I've been looking up a little bit the way people watch YouTube videos. If you look at the analytics, once you create a page, you can see the statistics for all that type of stuff. And people either watch 20 minutes of a video, make it through that, and then usually quit. And then if they liked it, they'll come back and watch another 20 minutes. And if they don't like that 20 minutes, people never return to that page. But if they do like that 20 minutes, they go back and binge all the previous episodes. And this is also what happens with like the meme page that's popping off. People go on and like a thousand pictures at once and start from two years ago. It's about having a catalog of work. So the point is that this past month isn't going to be very topical for the way people are absorbing content nowadays. That's how people watch YouTube. That's how people watch Netflix as well. Netflix isn't in good standings, people. Netflix feels like home to some people, but it, like five shows are being watched on there. Most of it is fluff. They <laughs> peaked in the market in like June of 2018. That's my reference. And then YouTube has said, because their parent company is Alphabet, who also owns Google and takes CIA money. So their funding is basically limitless. They're waiting to buy up Netflix when they tank a little bit harder and um, someone like Hulu or Amazon will make an offer and then they'll just be like, all right, we'll give you 127 million. But anyway, that's how people are watching YouTube videos. Point being, I'm making the show shorter now. I do in the description on every platform, all the timestamps. So hop around. Everything's broken down into bits. You can go listen to some part where you could learn, some part where you could laugh, some part where you can make fun of me. That's pretty much the whole thing. And I'm doing it myself, so don't tire yourself out. <laughs> so there won't be a this past month, but... I'll still obviously share a little bit at the top of the show. I feel like I'm reading quicker now. We went over Outliers last month, which I got a couple reviews. People were like, yeah, this is a little ooey-gooey, motivational, you can do it, keep on working, you know. So this month's book is more of a kick in the balls of reality and talking about a lot of us sit at our desk in the book. One of the stats is average amount of YouTube videos is up to an hour a day to desk workers are watching. So we're going to be going over all that, and this book is a bit more of a reality check, where as compared to last month, was all lovey-dovey, motivational. All about yin and yang here, we're doing equality. And so next month's book, I guess I'll just tease that now, is going to be Matthew Walker, another British author, Why We Sleep. 
So it's going to be cold hard facts you could take home to the bank. Not as much projection and theory as this month's book. So for April, you're going to be sleeping on cloud nine, a pee in a pod. It's going to be great. You're going to be getting cold hard facts about sleep, what you're doing wrong, what you're doing right, and how to get your eight to ten hours. None of this six to seven BS that everybody out there is getting. And maybe if it weren't for BS jobs, we wouldn't have to be doing these six hour nights. final plugs before we get into about the author harry schwant mentioned that a little bit last week people from the community are getting interchanged a little bit it's growing 6k followers shout out to the homies over there the community's strong if you want to go have a laugh obviously i'm posting funny content every night get your lulls the comment sections are absolute insanity they're funny ass people in there either starting fights trolling other people what other time in history could you have an anonymous profile and go interact with other people? Never. So let's go experiment and have fun with it. Go get involved over at Harry Schwant. Send me emails, criticisms, what you think about David Graeber's theory this month of bullshit jobs. Hit me at nmunas at udell.edu. Loving the feedback. Loving doing the show. Hoping you guys are loving listening and watching over on YouTube. My apologies about last month and how mad YouTube got about the music rights. So I guess I'm just going to have to go musicless on those uploads. Sorry, everybody. You got full tunes through the Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud links, though. No worries. Look at that. Trimming fat off the top already. That's an intro in less than 10 minutes. Let's talk about bullshit jobs. That's what this month is all about, people. This book, this is the disclaimer here. This book is a bit of a red pill, as in... Like you've seen the Matrix. Once you know that you're in the Matrix, you can't unknow it. There's knowledge in here that you can't unhear. Mr. David Graeber has thousands of thousands of pages of testimonies of workers all around the world because we are in a globalized economy now and it's more of managerialism that leads to bullshit jobs you're going to learn all about this today it's just, just leaking out of my brain right now in my mouth already into the microphone apparently sorry but this is knowledge that you can't unhear and you've heard it said before knowledge is a curse you don't want to know too much ignorance is bliss knowledge is a curse ignorance is bliss and i am well aware people that this could be a bit of a turnoff topic because many people define themselves by their jobs it's what you do for a majority of the week and it's not your fault it's how we have to get by in the world today you got to pay the bills but just unfurl your brow take a deep breath don't take yourself so seriously man we're only here for like a hundred years at best so make make a silly youtube video relax here's some crazy ideas that you wouldn't go and seek out yourself whoever you are i've done it all for you i've made it enjoyable so just sit back relax or get a harder workout if this is pissing you off <clears throat> that being said i am going to be more critical with this book next month's is going to be more factual this is more theory based so i am going to be interjecting a bit more about where there are flaws in Mr. Graeber's logic, because there are some of this is like the whole last chapter is about universal basic income, which has its pluses and minuses. We're going to have a bit of that debate today at the end of the show. I don't know what I'm going to say yet, but in your timeline, you could go step, <laughs> you could go skip ahead to wherever in the timestamps I have below. Go listen. Wrapping up this disclaimer, everybody has seen the meme going viral lately. It's usually a picture of the office with like Kevin, the accountant guy, and the caption goes something like, there's always one person in the office who does all the work. And you know this is true. 
there are the slackers and then the compulsive overworkers in every work environment. And so you're going to be able to relate to this show today, I'm sure, about your work environment and place the characters to the names and the sample groups that Mr. Graber has for us to go over. That way we can laugh at other people's bullshit jobs and you don't have to take anything personally. This is all just objectivity. And I like reading literature that would probably be banned in America. This we're going to talk about a little bit the way he had to do press for this book. No mainstream media would put him on. So this is the type of book that would have been banned in like the 1930s. Upton Sinclair, what was that guy's name who wrote The Jungle? It was about how the conditions in the factories were disgusting. They're putting fingers in your hot dogs. Banned book. This book, we don't really ban literature anymore because you can't get away with that. It's just the media will shadow ban you kind of like <laughs> kind of like right-wing voices are being shadow banned because the left is in control of the media <laughs> brain blast everybody the pendulum is going to swing the other day when the right wing gets in control of the media it's not going to look so good for the left wing this is why i take a third party stance it's stupid the games you play i think you're going to be understanding a lot more what i'm saying when we get into some of his quotes we'll be going over the thesis now it's only a seven chapter book so it's going to go about the author thesis chapters would you rather? Peace. And so let's start doing that. Mr. David Graber, British fellow, as I mentioned before, is now a 58-year-old man. He was born of a British family, so has the accent, the whole nine yards, but he was raised in New York and then went to the University of Chicago, a true man of the world, and spent two years of his college education abroad in Madagascar. And this isn't the foo-foo abroad work <laughs> that we're talking about now. You go away for 12 weeks with a bunch of other Americans and just have a couple slices of local food. This was like late 80s and 90s. Graber was writing his PhD about the violence in rural Madagascar and living in hostels. Pretty interesting upbringing he has. And then from the years of like 1998 to 2007, he was an assistant professor at Yale in the anthropology department, which is what he considers himself now an anthropologist, more so a writer, as he has left England and lives in New York. Referencing last month a little bit, this is where he put his 10,000 hours in, that 1998 to 2007 stretch, where he was an underling for the Yale academia, whole yada yada writing papers and getting good at writing books. This is his upbringing. And you notice that ends 2007 perfectly in time for the Occupy Wall Street protests he considers himself to be an integral part of. He claims, Mr. David Graver claims, to have coined the slogan, we are the 99%. Even if he did invent that, that's not that impressive of an invention. He just inversed the 1% fallacy and went, we're the 99%. You can pretty much start a chant. I used to start the chants at like the football games in high school. When people are ready to be riled up, just like being on stage, you can say a lot of things to start the chain reaction. And this guy was probably just in the middle of the crowd like, hey, we're the 99%. And then it just caught on and now he's trying to get a nickel from me for every time I say this. But whatever, we'll give him, we are the 99%. What was I saying before? Yin and yang? Knowledge is a curse. Ignorance is bliss. Same thing. We are the 99%. They're the 1%. Cool. <laughs> I will give him credit, though. The same time he wrote the Occupy Handbook. You've probably heard of this little thing. It's considered one of his most printed texts. 
which we'll transition now into a little bit more in his later career and and what Mr. David Graeber has written. He was a British professor at the London School of Economics until 2013, where he wrote his essay, Bullshit Jobs. Like we learned about outliers last month, these authors just float essays out there and whatever gets a reaction, they take it on as a project and will write the entire book. What caught flame before that one for Graeber was his book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, he wrote in 2011. It's about how empires collapse, you know, $21 trillion in debt the U.S. and rising. Go pull up the ticker website. It'll give you anxiety watching our debt rise. But unlimited spending is the new corporate model. We'll get into that today. So maybe we'll be doing a book review in the future about debt the first 5,000 years or his other bestseller, The Utopia of Rules, written in 2015. That book was about the start of this new social movement because 2014 was like the whole social justice warrior thing blew up. And he jumped on that, wrote a very topical book about social movements. And now this book, 2018, Bullshit Jobs. I just graduated college, 22 years old. Some of the listeners out there around the same age. We're in these underling positions right now, and these underling positions, (laughs) I've been in the workforce now for six years, no longer since I was 14, for eight years, you notice how much clutter there is in the work environment. So yeah, bullshit job, super topical. Graeber's living in New York, New York, big author, writes this book, it's been translated into 13 different languages. Just last year, he did his world tour. Like I said, you won't see this on any Sinclair-bought media, which is 90% of local media in America, quote-unquote local media in America, your Channel 6 News. It's not on CBS, not on CNN. Graeber had to do Russia Today appearances. This is Russia's media. (laughs) And... um, You can get access to this on the American internet still, but if I was doing this past month, I would do a segment about how Russia just mentioned that they're trying to close off their internet from the rest of the world. That's pretty scary. That's the type of stuff that starts wars eventually. That's how uh, North Korea started their dictatorship. How are we liberating them? I did a piece on this on the Sunday Scaries podcast It was one of my favorite things. Super interesting. South Koreans send balloons with flash drives on them of information. Things like this podcast with truth in it. North Koreans hear it, realize that Kim Jong-un didn't shoot an 18 on a round of golf, does poop, isn't a god, and they realize truth is really the biggest liberator and the coolest thing that we can spread. And that's why I worked at the radio station, man. This stuff fascinates me. It's This is what people do. Once we invented the technology, now we just want to float ideas, our frequencies over the frequencies. No, I'm saying. All right, I'll stop with the hippy-diffy stuff because there's a lot of hippie commune talk in today's book, Mr. British David Graeber. <laughs> that's your about the author. I mentioned next month's book. We're doing Why We Sleep, Matthew Walker, another British guy. They make for good authors because they have this fancy language, and I just butcher it down to the American facts, the meat and potatoes, with a little humor spice thrown in there. And that's Nick's nonfiction for us. So let's get into Mr. David Graeber's thesis about bullshit jobs. He references that 2013 article for Strike Magazine, the one that sparked the idea for this book. This article went completely viral while he was in a cabin for the weekend with his partner. This is also how I found out he was gay. And he comes back from reality from the weekend after 
<laughs> after hanging out with bears in the wilderness and publishing houses are offering him contracts to write books about this article like hey this thing's really blowing up people are interested we want to give you a chance and fund your project just like outliers this is how things get picked up and this is how this book was written if you want to buy this book, like I said, it's only seven chapters long, not that hard of a read. Right on the inner cover, he gives his thesis. He defined a bullshit job as a form of paid employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employees cannot justify its existence, even though as a part of the conditions of employment, the employee feels obliged, obliged to pretend that this is not the case. You cannot admit in any of your jobs that what you're doing <laughs> is not valuable. You got to leave after the boss. You've heard before, if you have time to lean, you have time to clean. That one pisses me off because sometimes you just bleached everything and you just earned some time to lean. It's just based off of keeping people busy, just like school, get in line, keep busy, <laughs> work for 40 hours a week. In that taste of the thesis, he mentions how people know that they have bullshit jobs usually or some aspect of their job is bullshit we'll get into this these jobs are on a spectrum it's usually not your job is or isn't bullshit some jobs are shit jobs like telemarketers those people aren't doing anything they're actually just creating more clutter for everybody so that's a shit job there's a spectrum so don't don't just knock yourself out of the fight yet everybody's doing something whether it has value the market will decide I'll give you a bit more of a taste of David Graeber's writing style in the preface here, kind of like an introduction. It basically was before chapter one. Here he says, if 1% of the population controls most of the disposable wealth, what we call the market reflects what they think is useful or important, not anybody else. But even more, it shows that most people in pointless jobs are ultimately aware of it. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever met a corporate lawyer who didn't think their job was bullshit. We have testimonies of a lot of those lawyers in the book and in today's podcast. Chapter two is all about how, like you said, people who know they're in a bullshit job, it's psychologically terrible for you because like they used to torture people in the siberian gulags the best way to break a man down is to make him move a pile of rocks from one side of the room to the other and then at the end of the day have him move it right back to where it was to begin with so that he knows what he's doing is pointless it's called psychological violence david graber uses his anthropological terms on us i'll sprinkle those in there i guess psychological violence he calls it it's just a mind fuck. <laughs> also in the preface here, he mentioned how this is a good preface fact before you start your book. He just sprinkled it in. We are now more productive in two days as a society with automation than we used to be in five days. But we work even longer hours than they did in the 70s, which it doesn't make sense. Where is all the wealth going? We're working longer with better machinery, and there is larger productivity. The corporate model is never stop growing. Where is all this wealth going? He suggests to the top and then uses quotes saying the 1% is the market, which has some idea. They do have a large influence. That's like saying Donald Trump's net worth is $5 billion, and that means you can sue him for $5 billion. No. He started a bunch of hotels with thousands of employees. All of that is worth $5 billion. He just doesn't have $5 billion liquid dollars for Stormy Daniels to take. But she's paying his lawyer fees now. 
Also, that MAGA kid is suing the mainstream media because they literally defaced him. They said they wanted names of these high schooler kids. The media people, these are the people you are trusting for your news. They are getting sued. The people who tried to make you believe. Oh my god, man. I'm just saying, I got more truth coming through this $100 microphone than they are doing on those million dollar red cameras on the coast in LA. I guarantee you, Megyn Kelly, who makes $8 million a year, what else can you do to make $8 million a year? Those jobs don't exist. You can lie in front of a camera for $8 million a year. These type of people aren't reading a book a month, man. Nick's nonfiction is where we're putting in the work and where real journalists and interpretation views, ways to look at society come from. This is the source. This is the seed in the ground. The roots have been planted. Like I said, we're doing changes to the show. The first episodes, the first songs of any band, the first jokes of any great comedian are usually the best because it's the most raw. It's just the stream of consciousness coming out. You're getting it directly from the source. There's no one else. (laughs) And this will lead me into my wheelhouse perfectly. (laughs) In the preface, David Graeber does mention conspiracy theories. So I'm giving you this as a personal disclaimer. I do not interject conspiracy theories into every book I read. I didn't even mention it on last month's show. It just comes up in a lot of things because, like I said before, it's truth. Quote from Mr. David Graeber. His whole theory of bullshit jobs this is referring to. This is less a conspiracy theory approach than it is an anti-conspiracy theory. I was asking why action wasn't taken. Economic trends happen for all sorts of reasons, but if they cause problems for the rich and powerful, those rich and powerful people will pressure institutions to step in and do something about the matter. Lobbying. This is why after the financial crisis of 0809, large investment banks were bailed out, but ordinary mortgage holders weren't. So you see he's referring to his experience in the 0809. The proliferation of bullshit jobs, as we'll see, happened for a variety of reasons. The real question I was asking is why no one intervened, conspired, you know where that dangerous word comes from, the C word, conspired, if you like, to do something about the matter. Look at the economic facts, people. We are about to be the first generation to be less successful than our parents. I think I said on last month's show, wouldn't it be a good goal for millennials to not want to die in an apartment? I don't know where I said that, but (laughs) that's what he's referring to here. People see this trend is happening. We're about to do worse for the first time in human history since like the 1500s when people didn't advance. They just sat around and put potatoes in the ground. This is the first time the odds are not in our favor to do better than our parents. In this model of corporate growth where you can watch the stock market, things trend up every single year. But how come the ability to jump up a socioeconomic class isn't as much there for our age? And Mr. David Graeber is going, this is a fact that gets thrown around a lot and a real problem with our society today. (laughs) Boomers are all like, millennials don't want to work. You gave us a literal world of shit. And you guys are still sitting in all the seats in Congress, so we can't do anything about it. (laughs) The more history you get into, everybody says... It's a human fallacy that every generation wants to blame their kids, the next generation, for being lazy. It happens every single time, every single generation. People, I can already hear people my age, I'm 22, saying high schoolers don't want to work today. Bro, generalizing. These are stupid ways to have a conversation. So David Graeber, he says that up front. He denounces any way that this could be a conspiracy. 
he has more testimonies than the U.S. Census does. They just hand out a box ticking sheet. This guy is getting actual words. Like an anthropologist, they go in and listen to the accounts of an African tribe. They don't just have them fill out a survey like a lot of social scientists do. So to try to summarize this thesis a little bit, as you can see, there's going to be a lot of ranting like that on the show. He says, we're more productive than ever. We work more hours than ever. Why? So there's obviously something fishy about that, but he doesn't focus on that as the point of the book. The point is proving to everybody that bullshit jobs exist. I don't agree with the way he proves it, and I will, like I said before, I'll be talking about when I think David is a little bit wrong, but for a lot of people out there, this is a new idea that a lot of people's jobs are bullshit. Like, if you go up, to, if a guy comes up to you at the bar and goes, yeah, I'm the uh, junior financial executive chief officer at a lower level liquid firm in the uh, S&P 500 market. <laughs> Half of those words were made up by your industry. It's not in the common lexicon. But this type of shit is everywhere, bro. So we're going to have a lot of fun with today's show. I think I'm about ready to jump into it. Thank you all for tuning in. Already a third episode. Look at that. We got a backlog going. This is episode three of Nick's nonfiction, Bullshit Jobs. Chapter one. What is a bullshit job? David Graeber starts his book talking about what is not a bullshit job. To simplify it so you don't have to read the book, he's basically talking about jobs that have a vacuum. Chapter 2, he goes over the five classifications of bullshit jobs and a little more descriptive of what those entail. Chapter 1, though, he's got to draw the bathwater, get you into the idea of what we're going to be talking about. So very broad, jobs that have a vacuum, jobs that will always need to be there. David's first example is a mafia hitman. A lot of people responded to the strike magazine, sent him testimonies, emails about how I do this all day at my job and I get paid $40,000 a year to do nothing. All those tweets could have been a book in their own. And so when he then announced he was writing this book in 2018, he got a friggin' encyclopedia of people complaining about their jobs. As for the hitman, this guy in Germany was a sub-sub-subcontractor for the military. Let me explain how this works a little. He is works for like a personnel management company, basically a, a headhunter, people who hire other people for other jobs. So this German hitman worked for a personnel management company where his paychecks come from. And then the German military pays a subcontractor to do the personnel management's IT. So there's no direct link to the personnel management and the German military, just the IT contractor. This already is sounding like I got a bunch of red strings on a cork board in my room. And then it, it pays someone to do their logistics. And then the logistics has Kurtz in it. So Kurtz was able to oversee the fact that all this shit was going down. And he no longer works for this logistics company after, which is why he went public with the information. But he said his job description was managing the personnel who are alive or no longer alive as a hitman. So that job could take two minutes a week. You just have to see if there's a death report out for this person that you're supposed to be following. Point being, look at all of this money that is being washed. There are four companies here where you could say, okay, you're a secretary here, you're a secretary here, whatever, whatever. We're going to be talking about troll companies today, how troll farms work, and how that's just a giant employment farm. Those are shit jobs. They're literally clouding our public square, the internet, with fake ideas, like the left and the right wing simultaneously try to push. 
as a libertarian, one of my views, I don't expect you to believe this, is government is a big mob. They have the guns. They have the money. They could tell you what to do. If you don't pay your taxes, you think, you know, we pay ta <laughs> the cops work for us. No, if you don't give them a third of your wealth every year, they come to your house and lock you away. So whatever, that's me. I see the government as a thug. And in this first example of the book, you kind of get an idea of how this criminal organization washes their money through different levels of organizations. Bernie Madoff did it. He just got caught because he was because he was ripping off rich people. Rich people don't go to jail if they're ripping off poor people. It's just because he was ripping off other rich people. Also, in the book, there are tons of testimonies about this going down in the Middle East. Obviously, you could go, oh, yeah, I'm sure this happens over in Saudi Arabia, but not in the good old U.S. of A. People are obviously waking up more to the fact of this. Sprinkled in the book, there are a lot more examples given of these subcontractor, subcontractor, subcontractor through, like, the Saudi Arabian and Iranian governments. Go check that out if you want to bore yourself reading about companies within companies without companies. This was the absolute most interesting i can fathom it being <laughs> so let me just tie that into the mudslingers now these troll farms i've read a couple of tests online people coming out about how you basically work for a personnel management company and then you move down the hall to like a different desk once a month or once every couple weeks and at the end of a pay cycle a new personnel company will claim your online work so you get paid from a different source and then the confessions online are like people saying we're given a script that we post on different forums we find online and then we're supposed to argue against this ideology using these pre-written responses if somebody is making a point that you can't refute then the point is to just spam, just like write things that'll direct the conversation in a different direction. And people are being paid to do this. Money is being laundered. And this is why Facebook is garbage now. I mean, you have bots everywhere. It... <sighs> Sorry, that is a frustration sigh. It's just this is supposed to be our tool, man, the internet, you know? That's why. I... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's why I'm coming to you live. Frustrates me get these mudslingers out of the equation that's what facebook and twitter should really be concerned about not banning people on the right end of the spectrum like i said uh, you're learning more about your host you're going to learn more about me throughout this show than probably the previous two because it is a bit more of a political topic but dude get the people that are trying to hurt other people and threaten them not left versus right ideology you shouldn't be allowed to be banned for that they should be concerned about people threatening to SWAT you, call the SWAT, <laughs> video gamers do this, they call SWAT on other people's house to get them to have to quit mid-game, but these are the type of people who the government should be, go who Twitter should be going after, not people who are just arguing within your pre-approved field of ideologies. Tying that back to our Hitman example that David Graeber liked to use, his job is not BS because it holds power. Like I said, there's going to be a vacuum would be my way to describe it. If he dies, somebody is going to be hired to be in that same exact position. So that's why the job is not BS. The position needs to be filled, basically put. But there is a degree of bullshit to the job. Like I said, everything's on a spectrum. Because if his position was eliminated, it would have no impact on the world. 
It's not like the means of production would stop. Nothing in society would change. It's just that somebody else would be hired. Humans are replaceable, man. So somebody else would just be in that exact same spot. That's why it just has a degree of bullshit to this job. But still, <laughs> but motherfuckers still need to get whacked. So that's why hitmen are always going to be around. It's up there with the oldest profession, just like prostitution. So keep that in mind through the next hour that everything here is on a spectrum. It's not black or white bullshit, non-bullshit. I've been doing a lot of references to our last episode, Outliers. Let me reference Accessory to War a little bit. I was talking about contracting, sub, 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 subcontracting. And then in the first episode, I mentioned how Panzer tanks were built. After World War One. the entire world was like <laughs> Germany. You're barely allowed to make cars. Chill everything out. You're not allowed to go to war ever again. That shows you how much sanctions really matter. They matter nothing. An entire world war could break out through this sub-sub-sub-contracting processes. Hitler loved Volkswagen. They would contract Volkswagen to make a specific tank part and then another Mercedes factory or BMW, Bavarian motor vehicles, would make the barrels of the tank. And so that happens today between Raytheon, Boeing, and all these aerospace companies. Everybody makes a tiny specific piece. These kids that get recruited out of engineering for college through the military or even from China they're recruiting. You work on a very small project and then everything gets put together through this subcontracting. So if you've been, <laughs> if you've been on board since our first edition and got to hear all of the nuances to Neil deGrasse Tyson's accessory to war you would know everything's on a spectrum just like it's not bullshit or non-bullshit it's not you have a treaty that says you can't make tanks so you can't make tanks life is in the gray baby anything's possible your job could be completely gone the next day and society would carry on somebody else might just be in that job just like the hitman example moving along People know when their job is bullshit. This goes back to that psychological violence, anthropological term that he likes to turn around. And the example that he used in the book was a civil servant in Spain that responded to David saying that he was going to write this book. And this Spanish lady was saying for 10 years of her life, she didn't show up for work and was still on the payroll. This is my dream. <laughs> this is anybody's dream. 10 years she didn't show up for work and was still on the payroll for $30,000 a year. And then when they caught her, they tried to make her pay the $30,000. But you can't do that. That's like <laughs> that's like when I, I used to work at a supermarket when I was 16, if there was a two-year-old that would like pick up a lollipop and just start eating it and they didn't pay for it yet. I wasn't gonna be like, give me back the lollipop. That's like these people who were giving her $30,000 a year and didn't even realize. They can't just ask for it back. She already probably spent it. She probably didn't spend all that money. She got $300,000 off of an error. But that's not her fault. And they didn't even realize she was gone is the point. This money would have been going nowhere anyway. <laughs> this job was completely pointless. So yeah, I'm not asking little kids... <laughs> I'm not asking little kids to give the lollipops they slobbered on back. It's a lost cause that's already gone. This lady, she beat the system because the system messed up. The system showed its hand that her job was meaningless. I uh, read a story a little while ago. It was about this guy in San Francisco, tech-savvy guy, obviously. If you want to pay rent in San Francisco, you got to be tech-savvy. He was working this low-level job for a company, basically like telecommunications, and he hired four different people in India. They got billions of people there. He hired four different people to do his weekly duties, and he was a work-from-home dude. 
so he picked up two different jobs, hired eight Indian people, and was making like 80k a year to do nothing. That's called management or delegation. That's basically the past couple hundred years in America and how all this bullshit gets started. The job of one man was then dispersed to the job of eight people. And just like this girl, she was stealing $30,000 a year. And nobody even realized. Eventually, that guy, the story I read about in San Francisco, his company found out he was doing that, fired him, fired all the employees on his level, and outsourced the entire calling floor over to India. So that guy ruined it for everybody. But he was living the absolute life for a little while. Big risk, big reward, baby. And throughout this book... <laughs> something i learned there are a good amount of examples of this happening in europe in like spain people on the dole they called it in ireland a couple examples of people in london just living off of um basically welfare but you get a government job and they pay you to do some like bullshit task for a couple hours a week and they give you thirty thousand dollars and that lady decided not even to show up and so yeah i realized that this is fairly common this goes on a lot and what it surrounds is power or influence the more power that there is no place the more propagandists swarm around them or yes men the type of guy that'll just do anything hey you're starting a new business yeah, yeah, yeah. i want to be there from the ground up yeah i'm there <clears throat> the more power or influence is in a place the more underlings gravitate next chapter one of the classifications of bullshit jobs are what flunkies do it's basically just servants positions to prop up another position make them feel meaningful we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit but the point here is that the more power or influence that is in a place doesn't disperse value the value still stands at the source yeah this guy can hire more people he can spread the wealth but he can't spread the value because the value is the source of the wealth I, I, man, I got to find a better way to articulate myself on these like economic ideas. I think a couple months from now, we might go over Anatomy of the State. It's a Maury Rothbard book, Hardcore Libertarian. So if you want to hear some truth, stick around. The show's only getting better. I'm getting better as a host. I'm going to be able to get these ideas over better. Yeah, it's basically civil servants, people stealing money from absolute BS jobs. We got examples of in the first chapter. So let's wrap up chapter one here with another job that he considers as not pointless. A hairdresser is a bad example of a bullshit job. Also a vacuum. You know, you're always going to need someone to cut hair. And the only bullshit that everything's on a spectrum though. So there is some bullshit to a hairdresser career. And that really comes in all the red tape around it. If I want to go just cut my buddy's hair for a few years, that doesn't mean I'm any less qualified than someone that went through all the certifications of beauty school just to get a state certificate. I used to pay a kid $5 to cut our hair freshman year. He could give some nasty fades by the end of the year because he was given $5 cuts like once a day, you know what I'm saying? It's just about that consistency getting your reps in. And there's a personal real life example from me relating to David Gerbner's writing that there's going to be a vacuum for these jobs, even in a dorm room. <laughs> even in a dorm, like a, a tiny little ecosystem of its own where we're not going to go down to the main street where broke college kids and pay $20 to have her head shaved this kid was doing it for five dollars a pop and he was making a killing for a little bit and then david graber starts talking about the sexual services industry and i uh i just dis disagree with him a little bit because he called stripping a bullshit job because it only exists due to a bullshit society he's taken the approach of like 
the patriarchy saying how if women were so oppressed and men didn't have to like hide and sneak around to these strip clubs these jobs wouldn't exist therefore they're bullshit but that goes against his whole logic of it's one of the oldest professions just like hitmen it's always going to be there we've been beating on drums brewing beer and looking at boobs since the beginning of time and so to call that a bullshit job why are you doing that you're devaluing your entire premise in the first chapter you can't have your cake and eat it too what is what i'm saying these people will be like women are forced into stripping because the patriarchy and it's a terrible but then at the same time leftist ideas will say stripping is empowering it literally gives the money and the power of your own body to women i obviously agree with that idea more but the left wing is contradicting themselves doesn't that not make your brain hurt? If you're a rational person, that makes my fucking brain hurt. So this guy, it's not a bullshit job, obviously. It's empowering. These people are selling what they have, their body, which is more than a lot of other people have, and they're making money off of the value that they have. Just makes sense. That doesn't seem like bullshit to me. Like I said, I'm going to be interjecting when this guy doesn't make sense. We're not just being fed David Graeber's ideas like baby food, like bullshit. You know, I'm giving you the Nick's nonfiction where you got the truth barrier up. Only the realest stuff gets through. Let's end the first chapter here. He was talking a little bit about the graphs of reported working times. And then over half of hours in most fields are wasted. Go to any office in America. I'm sure you could find someone with a basketball hoop inside their cubicle or just hourglasses, lava lamps, you know, stuff to just waste your time. In this same graph and survey, it was reported that desk workers spend over an hour a day on YouTube. That's just an hour on YouTube. And this doesn't consider podcasts and all that. Podcasts are massive, bro. People really aren't sitting at home, though, and listening to podcasts, though. It's a giant work thing. People do sit at home and watch YouTube videos. That's why I'm trying to get both aspects going for this show. Go watch some ridiculousness or just listen to the stream of consciousness and you're probably going to digest the ideas a little bit better. I'm giving you all the options. The solutions are surrounding you here at Nick's Nonfiction. And so from the beginning to the end of chapter one of Bullshit Jobs with the sub-sub-subcontractors of Hitman washing all this money and to now people reporting how much they're spending time on the internet and doing nothing at work this begs the question can half of work time or jobs be eliminated without slashing this output or productivity that we have risen to we're so much more productive in such less time can we just eliminate some of that time and stay as productive if you put this as a simple math equation the answer would be yes, but then what's keeping us for still working 40 hours a week like Henry Ford set up the 40-hour work week? Maybe we'll get an answer over the next hour, so stay tuned. Getting ready for some of the meat here. Get ready for some of the meat. What sorts of bullshit jobs are there? This chapter is about the five major varieties of bullshit jobs, and the way he classified all these is a lot of work went into writing this book. He describes throughout, obviously, a lot of work goes into writing a lot of books. It's not just this guy coming up with five different ideas about bullshit jobs. He took the thousands of Twitter testimonies that I've been mentioning and was able to classify them into these major categories. So let's jump into them. The first being what flunkies do. 
he's trying to refer to people who didn't do well in school. These jobs mainly exist to make someone feel important. The ones I was referring to before. So the servants, minions, clients, psychopaths, brown nosers, ass kissers. One of the examples he used a long time ago in the ages of cupboard wagons, there used to be servants that would run alongside your carriage on the road, and then he would warn the family of upcoming bumps. Just bump, bump, the whole time. That was his job all day. <laughs> There's definitely more value in a system of shocks in today's vehicle that would absorb all those bumps, but having that guy there, not completely bullshit. IMO. But these people are one of the categories we're using flunkies, just underlings, people that are clearly in a lesser position of power and everybody around is aware of it. So people that are bigger than life for the easiest example, like uh, superstars, rappers, actors have entourages. You can't give the impression that you're this bigger than life character, more valuable than a standard human if you don't have this entourage of underlings surrounding you. And I don't know why he tries to make this connection in the book that these people are usually flunkies. It's pretty smart, man. If you know that this is how the system works, why not go make a hundred grand a year and follow around Gucci Mane or whatever? They don't seem like a failure to me in the slightest bit. That's playing the system. The quicker you realize this is a game, the more you can reap the rewards. And that's why brown nosers and ass kissers are in this subcategorization because they realize that kissing the boss's ass is going to get them further than actually working hard. In a lot of workplaces, it's politics, not work, that gets you the next promotion. Regarding the entourage, these people are usually given a uniform or cool clothes to give the illusion that the object of value is even more valuable. So just like with the rapper, they're given brand name clothing to make it look like the one guy, his music is even better because he's able to stunt this hard. Or with the CIA, they're all given <laughs> black rims, shaded sunglasses, and black suits and earpieces to stand still to give the impression that this guy is always trying to be killed. So a bit more of an extreme version of an underling. Their job is a little bit less on the bullshit job scale, I would assume, because they are protecting a higher value target. But you can see that you don't need somebody opening the door for this guy. <laughs> He's, the president is more than capable. He has two hands. Open the fucking door for yourself, you big baby. But let's bring this into our world, the listener's world. Let's make this relatable for all you people. If you live in a major city, you see doormen. It's to give the illusion that the building has value. It's a safe place that nobody can just make it up. I've walked into buildings. I worked at a sushi place for a while. When like Grubhub failed, they would just have me on my moped go whip out some deliveries. And I would just walk into buildings with doormen who were playing fucking Angry Birds. And I would get to take the elevator up to these giant high-rises and stuff. It's just to give an illusion. I could have had a Glock instead of <laughs> California roll in that bag. The, the job is completely bullshit. It's just there to give an illusion. I have nothing against front desk doormen, man. I would do it myself. So just take my words with a couple cents here because I'm going to be slinging a lot of mud at a lot of professions, but I would do a lot of these things myself. Let's take that a level up. Most of Americans work in offices. Same thing with a receptionist. That job can be automated in today's society. But if you go to Ernst & Young on 
Wall Street, you're going to expect them to have somebody who's going to tend to you, like a servant, basically, to come and wait on your every needs. And that's the point of the underlings. They're there to make everybody else buy into the illusion and feel better about themselves. I would put, personally, receptionists a little bit further down the scale of the bullshit job spectrum, probably even more valuable than the Secret Service, because even in some of the testimonies in the book, there were examples of secretaries being like, my job is majority bullshit, but I wind up doing a bunch of the CEO's work, like their actual meaningful work, which I believe that. But on the flip side, isn't the entire point of a boss's job to delegate so this is where the entire theory of the bullshit jobs gets a little weary to me. That's the only reason that you need a boss is to delegate the jobs. Otherwise, people are just going to stand there and wipe the same spot. Just like if you have time to lean, if you have time to clean, you need that middle management to go tell people where they should be scrubbing because everybody's just going to continue scrubbing the same thing. It's what we do as humans. It's what we do in the workplace. It's what we do in our day-to-day -day patterns. It's all the freaking same. I'm here to try to break that up. I'm here to try to break all of this up, mother truckers, putting that truth through the airwaves. And so, yeah, I, I disagree with Mr. David Graber a little bit here. Sometimes the secretary is going to work on the non-bullshit aspects of a job because that's delegation in progress. That's how the corporate model is supposed to work. The flow of information. I still think a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready for a little bit of a tangent. I hope you are too. You need these underlings, though. Like, you need a receptionist at one end with the bullshit obligations, and you need the CEO at the other end who, let's be honest, they do a lot of bullshit obligations, too. Four times a year, they have to do a quarterly earning report where they just go, yeah, we're, we're doing business as always. We're flubbing the numbers, so we're looking bigger, but the business is doing the same as always, okay? They put it in pretty words so that their stock prices do go up, but that's pretty much bullshit as well. It's all just illusions that need to be portrayed. The way David was talking about this is in like the hippie communes, how people just take on certain roles. There is obviously the head, the guy that successfully brainwashed everybody and is getting them to do the work so that he can reap the rewards, which in the hippie communes is usually hooking up with everybody's wife. But this is how businesses start as well. I'll use the example. I'm here in Denver and you see marijuana has just been legalized and you have all of these little pot startups happening it's literally the hippie communes clashing with the economic world this is perfect <laughs> for obvious reasons very interesting to me and the way it works if you go there are like these small dispensaries it's just as common as booze there's more weed shops around town than alcohol stores and that's kind of because the alcohol stores have been franchised already which is what i'm getting at so you see these little shops will pop up where it's like five guys who are growing transporting and selling everything they just got their licenses approved and they're splitting the cuts evenly there's only like five guys running this tiny operation and then it gets a little bit bigger and you guys naturally want to open a second store you're like hey there's five of us that started this thing we could go two and two and have one guy float and then you find out one guy doesn't have as much motivation and he just kind of wants to try all the new marijuana that your startup company is smoke <laughs> smoking is selling and he just wants to be a bud tender for the rest of his life he doesn't actually want to try to go up to this delegation position so they start this new franchise and now there's a sixth person and that guy who just wants to bud tend is making less of a cut 
and then the more stores they open, they have to pay him even less because then the other bud tenders see it and they would have their wages increased as well. And eventually you get to the point they have these places that are basically the Mc- <laughs> the McDonald's of marijuana who are, you know, open like 24-7 paying $10 an hour. And then that beautiful hippie commune where these group of five dudes thought it'd be funny to throw their leftover seeds in their garden in the backyard and actually able to sell some bud three months later. You see how it always turns into a franchised corporation. Maybe that's human nature. Maybe that's regulation. I don't know how all this works. We're here to figure out. It'd be ignorant of me to (laughs) tell you what it is because there are three episodes in, so obviously I don't have all the answers. But anyway, there's going to be these underlings that will always get left behind the bigger that things grow. And that's going to bring us to our second categorization of bullshit jobs. And this is what goons do, David Graeber calls it. These are basically jobs that have a crucial element, but only exist because other people employ them. So kind of like the hitman example. There is a vacuum there, but... If you get fired, it's not like the world would change. It's not like people aren't going to be fed the next day. Nothing happens. This is when Mr. Graber starts to take shots at the military, first time in the book. And the example that he uses is for the first time in United States history, we just have a standing military and we're not in a time of war. This has never been a thing throughout world history. Even in pre-modern China, when the Huns were coming to attack, the men were at home farming. And then when war was coming, then the women and the children took over the farms and the men went out to war. Now in America, we have this entire class. What is it that's employed by the military? Every branch, 10 million people, millions of people are just employed when we're not even at war. But I mean, you could say, oh, we've been at war for 20 years in the Middle East. That just sounds bad saying, even if you, no matter if you think that's an excuse or not for having a standing military, that just sounds terrible objectively. We've been at war for 20 years. Cool, man. (laughs) Should we still be spending $4 trillion a year and have the biggest standing military in history? I don't think so. That's kind of David's point here as well. And you got a little bit more of a feel because I thought David Graeber, I couldn't find this online anywhere. I just figured he was a hardcore leftist because he was so involved with the Occupy Wall Street protests. But here he is taking down the idea of socialism because that's basically what the military is. If you go on a military base, you know, they have the, <laughs> they have your cafeteria. They have where you can go buy the government approved clothing. They have your bowling alley, your sanctioned fun. It's how a socialist society would look if the means of production were owned by the government, which is how it is there. And owned by the government, all their uniforms are made by private prisoners. But that's a whole other gross side to the story. That's how socialism winds up going. And so this is what goons do in history. In like Fyodor Dostoevsky's works, you hear the military class referred to as the barbaric class. It's just the enforcer class. And so David Graeber here is referring to them as the goon class who just live off of the extracted wealth of the ruling class, the government. And so that's why our government spending is so high, because we have a standing military in a time of peace. And that's not going anywhere, people. This is a norm now. We let it slip for too long. Nobody cares. Everything is too good. The Patriot Act, we're being spied on. That's not getting reversed. This standing military spending $4 trillion a year, it's not getting reversed unless Nick's nonfiction goes viral. So share this. (laughs) And so right now, if you're a pro-military person, you're probably saying to me, what are we going to do? Disband the military? The military is what 
creates all these technological advancements. Hey, Nick, you're contradicting yourself. Two months ago, you were talking about how in Accessory to War, we created the microwave by reverse engineering Nazi technology. That's true. But I'm not saying that the free market wouldn't create that without... <laughs> that the free market wouldn't have created the microwave without the Nazis coming to power. Do you think the entire history of war, death, and terrorism is worth the microwave? I'm sure some virgin in his parents' garage would have been shooting microwave beams at his friggin' Dorito sandwich and eventually would have created the microwave. Don't worry. But instead, the military had to do it, and now the microwave's making more people obese than the actual war on terror that the military is claiming to fight. We're killing ourselves more than anybody is killing us through friggin' obesity, people. The argument just doesn't make sense that the free market wouldn't create these things. Like, Da Vinci... In 1500, he almost created a helicopter, but then the crown had to stop funding him because, you know, he was a twink, and they were like, dude, you're a satanic, this stuff is a little too big for us, we need to stop you. You can go paint pretty girls, and he's like, no, I'm gonna paint these women who <laughs> kind of look like men and are staring into your soul like no other painting can. Okay. If the helicopter almost got invented in 1500, and... If people like Neil deGrasse Tyson can create electromagnetic fields in their garage, my point on this rant was supposed to be that the free market would create anything that the military takes credit for, except for maybe the atomic bomb. I don't know how much <laughs> value there would be in creating the atomic bomb, but now we have those sprinkled across our great earth, so there's that. And so you get an idea of the goons of society and where that whole branch of employment comes from and how that lies on the spectrum of bullshit. And we'll move on to our third categorization of bullshit jobs. And David Graeber calls these what duct tapers do. And these are jobs that exist because a glitch or fault in the organization. I kind of disagree with this. He says these people are solving a problem that shouldn't exist. But he's ignoring the fact that things break. It's inevitable. Everything breaks in nature in human creation, things break. So ignoring the fact that they're going to need to be fixed is kind of slimy, just so that you can add an extra clarification in your bullshit jobs book. But I'll give it a little bit of merit here. He does acknowledge that if you did your job perfect, things wouldn't get dirty, what I'm saying about things breaking. But that's why cleaners exist, is the analogy. So if people were not as lazy, <laughs> you wouldn't have to hire a cleaner to come into your home. That is a very foreign idea to me. I guess maybe I just wasn't high class enough as a kid, but what the hell? You have to pay someone to come into your house to rearrange your things every month? How dirty are you? I do respect that whole idea though, because there is this thing I remember learning about in abnormal psychology in school, one of Freud's ideas, Sigmund Freud, called it housewife neurosis. Housewives obviously get this a lot when you're at home day after day after day and you clean the same thing. And then the next day, you know, the thing that you just cleaned is going to be dirty again. It drives you subconsciously crazy. And that's kind of related to, uh, I was mentioning before, Dostoevsky, who wrote a lot about the Siberian gulags. The best form of torture is to have someone do the same thing over and over and over and know that what they're doing isn't really having an effect on anything. <laughs> That's why frat hazing is so effective. Everyone goes crazy and gets neurosis together. Regarding the housewife's neurosis, Graeber 
kind of ties this idea in with security companies are hired year after year like a an accountant firm will, will hire a security company to make sure nobody from the outside can come and look at their information that needs to be kept confidential because of laws and so every year security companies hire IT companies that will often just write gibberish firewalls and then the next year they'll come in for the yearly checkup because you know according to regulations you have to have your firewalls checked up every single year now to make sure that there's no economic information theft in this example and so these companies will just come in and code baloney on their computers and then the next year come in and do the same exact thing those he considers lies on the spectrum of duct taper bullshit jobs, fixing things that usually don't need to be fixed and aren't being fixed. Another one of these duct tapers in the book was a lady who worked at the VFW organization for people who served our country dealing with their retirement. This lady was saying that her job for the VFW, getting government funds all of our money, was to copy and paste emails forwarding them to people that the previous email said <laughs> so her job she admitted used to be automated but the vfw got a higher allocation of funds that year so they added her position and so there's too many people in today's world there's billions of people there's a vacuum if you put a job ad out on the internet somebody's going to take it you can't leave money on the table so to speak so we've created our own vacuum for bullshit to be able to survive and this lady at the vfw was just forwarding emails to people a job that could have been completely automated and this is money that could have been used to help veterans get over their ptsd real money for research her 30k a year could have gone to maps the study for psychedelic recovery for veterans and i hear this i take a lot of ubers around denver and they're trying to legalize mushrooms medical mushrooms in denville in denville in in denver imagine that i'm from a town in new jersey called parsephony imagine the next town over legalized mushrooms no anyway i'm talking to uber drivers around denver and they're going you hear this they're trying to say that mushrooms are medicine they're trying to say that mushrooms can cure your brain it's not just for these little hippy dippies that want to run around and get high i have no idea what kind of an accent i just gave for your denver uber driver when in reality 99 percent of them are foreigners but yeah nobody's buying the fact that mushrooms are actually medicine but this maps organization has found out through testing at vfw's a lot of vets have alcohol addiction it's just a drug that you turn to when you don't know what to do with your problems. I'm sure many people can relate. And MAPS found out, this research organization, administering heavy doses of mushrooms, psychedelics, has an 80% cure rate on alcoholism. This is like a magic drug. These statistics are fucking unprecedented, but this stuff is legitimately magic. I never tell that stuff to these people. I just talk about the stuff on my podcast. You know, this is where I'm not trying to change people's mind in Ubers. That's just not happening. I'm not spending my time doing that. How did I get here? Oh, this girl that's wasting money at the VFW. So yeah, if we got rid of her job, this money could be going to curing 80% of men who have given their lives to us. We can give their lives back to them. Sorry to get soft. Let's wrap up what these duct tapers do. These people that just have jobs because glitches in the system exist. I put hundreds of hours volunteering in at a hospital. And so volunteer work in itself 
is basically admitting that you're doing bullshit because you're not getting paid. There isn't really value to your job. I got in trouble as a kid for playing with airsoft guns on top of a school. Not my greatest idea. <laughs> I, I did school shootings before school shootings were cool. <laughs> and my punishment for this was I had to volunteer. And so I did my volunteer hours at the PAL. Some people have these police athletic leagues. It was just a gym, basically. And so the guy at the front desk thought I was doing these volunteer hours just to be like a good Samaritan, good old teen in our community. But in reality, it's because I was playing with firearms on school property. And he's like, dude, I really don't care what you do. Just get away from me. He's like, make sure I don't have to manage you. Managers don't want to manage you. That's why you have to act like you're busy so that they can act like their job isn't bullshit. And so at this PAL, he would give me a mop at the beginning of the day. And like six hours later, I would come back sweating like I just doused myself with a mop. But I was just playing basketball the whole day. <laughs> and that's volunteer work. I, I meant the hospital. <laughs> they usually have you rolling people around and i did get some value out of that i took a lot of value as a teenager there's not a lot you could do to add to the world so i would wheel people around wheel the babies outside that got them their first breath of fresh air that's what my college essay was about i really did find value in that but a majority of the hours while i was volunteering at the hospital i was in the gift shop which to begin with why do hospitals have a gift shop <laughs> grandma just passed away let's go get some charleston chews to pass this she loved those i have no idea what that was there i made some good memories those will be with me forever but i'm not going to admit that wasn't mostly bullshit but i was able to use it on my resume and that's how the system continues you just fluff it up and keep moving on and that's my duct taping jobs experience fourth categorization of bullshit jobs here in chapter two are box tickers what do box tickers do? This kind of bleeds into the example I was using about the VFW. That girl's salary could have just gone to maps. Well, the example David Graeber used in this book was an event coordinator at an elderly home. So this girl's job was to make, you know, like movie time, six to eight, music time, eight to ten, things that people would normally do. You just print it on a calendar once a month and you make $30,000 a year. So the point of these box ticker jobs is that your salary is just being used for what, <laughs> for the actual function they want the money to go towards when they could do it themselves. So the girl that wrote into Mr. David Graeber was realizing her job was bullshit because she was getting paid $30,000 a year when they could have just purchased like a VR system, a $30,000 entire rig for this elderly home, and they would have been entertained forever. I cannot wait for elderly homes when I'm in my, what is it going to be like 2070 when I'm getting incapacitated old? Those are going to be lit there. People are going to be high off Viagra doing this VR. It's going to be a great time. We're not going to need talent coordinators. There's going to be AI for all that. Or, you know, these people don't need to exist in the first place. You just get a text at the beginning of the day what's going on. And then you do that. Point being, that $30,000 that she was making a, a year could have been used to go to that VR entertainment system or to hire comedians to do $100 spots at this old person home. Not a bad idea. Comedian caregivers, they get $30,000 a year and you just bullshit with old people all day. I feel like they would appreciate that. It's someone who's still living a life. You go out and do your sets at night and then you go back to the elderly home during the day and you, uh, you just hang out with people. They enlighten you. You enlighten them. They get to hear about your crazy stories from the previous nights. 
but they just can't expect you to wake up at 5 a.m. with them. That's a box ticker solution. Comedian caregivers. <laughs> Hire me. Another example David Graeber used, he got a little political here, mentioning the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which was passed in the early 00s, saying companies have to try to not do business with external firms that may be doing illegal things. So it's a law that says you have to try not to break the law. <laughs> if anybody has read the Panama Papers, they discovered recently how Apple offshored $2 billion of tax money. So obviously the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act did nothing to get those $2 billion back into our economy. It's just it got washed through Ireland first. It came out. And this is very similar to the lady's job that's there to make fun but she doesn't actually make any fun. She subtracts from the fun. This bill is the same thing as this lady's job. The bill is there in place to say something, but it doesn't actually do anything. And this lady is there to say something. She doesn't actually do anything. So if the old people are like, hey, we haven't had fun in a month. What the hell is going on? The caregivers can just be like, hey, this is this lady's position. You can go talk to her. It's just a hierarchy of bullshit set up. Whereas my <laughs> my comedian caregivers is the ultimate solution here you get to go admit to your semi-bullshit job and you get to go pursue what you actually care about in this world we are on number five this is what taskmasters do to bring chapter two full circle what david does he started talking about underlings you know what flunkies do they are there to prop up other people make other positions seem more important what taskmasters do is assign other people work which is the opposite of the flunkies rather than an unnecessary subordinate it's an unnecessary superior their responsibilities alone could be classified as bullshit because the underlings could do it it's just delegation these are bullshit creators. I'm sure you could think of one of these like middle management positions in your office. They're there supposed to be motivating other people to work. Like HR might have a motivational department. In this book, we'll get into some companies are starting like their own Facebook that you have to be on. But these mid-level managers are supposed to be there to motivate you to do better work when in reality, they're just pissing you off. And so it's more of a shit job than a bullshit job on that whole spectrum. You can look at these are similar to strategic leadership positions on campus, which is just inserting bullshit into other people's lives. Like your RA every week, you would have to have a floor meeting where you would have to write a poem or bring some food or have a story or something like that. And that sucks man if you don't like your floor is a bunch of lemons or you actually have homework to do floor meetings aren't a good time this ra is a mid-level manager they're just inserting problems in your life that don't need to be there i kind of touched on how dorms are an ecosystem of their own you don't need an ra there if someone's being too loud just knock on their door tell them they're being too loud or you're going to call the police what is this ra doing there it's a microcosm of what are these middle managers doing there they're just task masters <laughs> you ever heard of a continuation binder it's condensing your entire work responsibilities into a binder so that the next person knows what they're doing. Every mid-level manager, all these task managers could be reduced to a continuation binder. You hear people saying this at work. If you dip into someone else's responsibility, hey, that's my job. Don't do my job. We'll get into later. There are stories about people being fired for this, so I don't want to get ahead of myself, but 
those are taskmasters. They are creating bullshit when ecosystems are already in place, like the example of the RA. Think about fraternity chairs. Fraternity is truth. If you have all the resources in the world, you have free money coming from your parents that you have to spend every month, you're going to meet up with other fun guys, drink a lot of beer, and try to hook up with women. It's truth. That's the truth of the world. Those are the tribes that used to go across Africa. Some people get off the truth. Some people get off to telling other people that they're hurting your feelings. I get off the truth. Fraternity chairs wouldn't even lie about this type of stuff. You know, there's, I am the social media chair. I'm the ritual chair. I'm the keg chair. I'm the, pl- <laughs> I'm the pledge chair, the basically hazing chair. It's a joke, but at the same time, it's truth. That's why comedy is so great. It's all just truth. This book has a lot of truth in it. We're discovering how these people are taskmasters, but just for the point of putting it on their resume. That's what a lot of this is good for. Like, you need experience. I'm starting to think your 20s is just a big <laughs> a big period of hazing. At the end of the hazing, there's no initiation, though. You kind of just get a better job because you have eight years of bullshit experience. At the end of the fraternity, you actually get initiated into a system where you get to go tell your own truth, which is wanting to party. Every human wants to party, so tell that truth. There's whole levels of truth to people, and hiding that, you're just going to repress it for later in life. This wraps back to, you know, the whole look busy or get laid off type of thing, and (laughs) these fraternity chairs are well aware of the fact of this bullshit organization. And they exploit the truth. The entire idea of hazing. It's Dostoevsky. It's psychological violence. It's making people do bullshit. Like I just gave my whole theory right there about doing eight years to try to get experience to get a real job. In finance, where there's actual value and money, the interns literally just get hazed. Because that's what businesses actually want to do to their lower level employees. But since there's all these laws in place, you can't. They'll make them go get a coffee with like a pink backpack on, all that type of stuff. And that's why if you look at the statistics, people who are in fraternities often are much more economically successful than other people. Obviously because they had much more advantages earlier in life, going back to outliers. There's obviously common denominators to success, so it would be stupid to be offended by those or to ignore them. And when you realize that there's bullshit and you get involved in the bullshit, you, how do they say, um, embrace the suck is one of the things in the military or even in pledge ship. If you know that you're in this bullshit and you have to get through the bullshit job, then you're going to reap the rewards. End of chapter two. So now we have an idea of what David Gerbner considers a bullshit job and He breaks it down into these five categories, but to end the chapter, he wants to rehash the fact that there are complex, multi-form bullshit jobs. So life is in the gray. Most jobs are just combinations of bullshit thrown together. Telemarketers are goons. I explained it as he did the military class, but telemarketers, they're just goons. They're using force to push people into a form of box ticking. There's flack catchers who are mid-level managers who are there to take the heat when an employee misses a call. So basically duct tapers. When an employee fucks up, the customer wants somebody to yell at. Like, (laughs) I remember when I used to work at the supermarket and something would go wrong and people would complain. There's no stakes in this situation. I got really good at the death stare, just staring into someone's eye like, are you fucking serious right now? Is this really, this is what you're doing with your time? You're yelling at someone making $9 an hour. I think I was making $7 an hour then. $7 an hour. And I would give people this death stare because I'm the lowest level. You can't get in trouble for that. So I would just stare into their soul. 
but there needs to be these multi-form bullshit jobs like flat catchers where i have someone who's above me who can come over and be like oh i'm so sorry i'm so sorry on the company's behalf here's what you want we'll reimburse you these companies are making ungodly sums you can always reimburse people and so you need someone one level above to give the illusion that the customer won when really the customer just made themselves look like a f idiot all these Karens and Debbies. I need to speak to your manager. <laughs> All you're doing is putting on a show for everybody. David brings the military comparison back a little bit. In the instance of a flat catcher, it's better to be a flat catcher and know you're a flat catcher. Because if I'm that mid-level manager who's taking the apology, if I don't know that I'm just playing a part, it's going to be psychologically brutal to have to give every single person a genuine apology you're gonna go home feeling like you just genocided a population you just let people down all day this is why cops are so mentally unstable because you're playing this game and everybody you talk to is lying to you and doesn't want to be talking to you it's terrible for you these people that are in the mid-level manager positions you have to know that you are playing a part otherwise you're gonna go home and being like oh man our company's doing so bad i did so bad today no, some people will come into your shop wanting to be angry, and you have to realize that. The example that David Graeber used was military guards in England in the 1900s because the military was being protested a lot in England in the 1900s. <clears throat> and so these English protests, people were actually going after military guards. You know, the people in the silly hats that stand outside of the castles? <laughs> they live in a weird-ass society over there. You can't say that about America. Those dudes that stand in those silly hats and stand outside the moats in their castles, people were going and attacking them because they stood for the military. And people were like, why are we in Iran right now? What is America getting us into? And they would go and attack the British guards. And so the British guards were like, yo, you're going to take some beatings over the next couple of years. Always be on guard. You're just going to be our flak catchers. They literally called them by that term. And you see a lot of corporations follow the military model. Flat catchers, that entire role comes from the military. The, the Revolutionary War, you send out your worst soldiers first to get shot. <laughs> That's how it works. And then as for these uh, complex multiform bullshit jobs, there's also second order bullshit jobs. So like those temp agencies, the sub-sub-subcontractors, there's shell corporations out there, but then someone has to run the books for the shell corporations so that's a second order bullshit job it's like it's just a job to the second degree that shouldn't have to exist in the first place so this loops back to the initial question is it possible to have a bullshit job and not know it yes but it's better to know it like in the situation of the flat catcher because whoever's cutting the check above the guy you can always be an entirely bullshit job so i cannot know that my boss's entity is completely bullshit and i could always not know that i'm part of a second degree bullshit job <laughs> so there's no escaping the waters people is basically david graber's point here to wrap up our second chapter and i hope you all now have more examples and ways to compare a bullshit job and what it actually means it's time for chapter three and we're going to be getting into a little bit psychological violence because this chapter is titled why do those in bullshit jobs regularly report themselves unhappy <clears throat> let's start this off with a quote this will give you a bit of an idea of the literature that mr david graber is into a quote from nori 
Workplaces are fascist. They're cults designed to eat your life. Bosses hoard your minutes jealously like dragons hoard gold. Okay, so that gives you a bit of a preface as to how he's going to be approaching the fact that we don't have that much time for ourselves and how it's really unhealthy. David references some more history here, how it's written in the Bible that to be a good man, you should always pay back your debts and money lenders are evil. And after that quote at the beginning of the chapter, making me think a little bit that he was about to turn on Jewish people for being the evil money lenders, talking about conspiracies and then being jealous, feudalist, dragon hoarding fascists. Calm down, David, okay? He used a couple more stories of example from his Twitter feed, stories from people in the UK and Europe who live off the dole, and then just will read novels. Hey, <laughs> I mean, if I was in Europe, that sounds exactly like I would, what I would be doing. But the point is that these people aren't stealing from anyone but the state. So it's more of a victimless crime than a burglar who is breaking into a home and stealing from another person. In the book, there was this guy in the UK named Eric. He was hired via union so left-wing union through a mistake so he had the perfect situation just like the girl in spain before he where he would only have to go into work one day a week to get his work done making a full salary every year and he would get done what he wanted within like an eight hour work day just that one day a week he was like employee of the month type of stuff a couple times and a very happy guy, self-proclaimed. And then the company realizes that they made a mistake and this guy needs to actually spend some more time in the office. They were trying to like cover their own ass and not look like the Spanish government asking that lady to give $30,000 back. They have Eric start coming in the office like four days a week for 40 hours. And this is when he starts showing up to work drunk. But they're giving him more money and so he starts like blowing all of his money on yachts out in France when he used to be a big saver. And he said he was being paid ridiculous amounts for a job to answer the phone two times a day. So even though he was in the office for 10 hours, he would literally take two phone calls. But he felt like he was in solitary confinement going crazy. Starts drinking. It affects his entire psyche. So this guy's probably unhinged to begin with, in my opinion. But this is one of David's examples point of the example being he said this guy eric saying he found it worse being in the office four days a week it felt like utter purposelessness to be there and not do anything than to actually just be there for eight hours and do everything whereas someone would probably be like you only work for eight hours a week you're purposeless but in reality he's actually doing meaningful work for those eight hours instead of just hiding in an office Another example he used was the needlessness of a small shopkeeper on campus, the hub stores that you have around your campus. So this example, the kid <laughs> was in university. So in today's university, he was being brainwashed as a communist. And the kid goes, yeah, I hate my campus job. I literally just have to act busy for a majority of the day. And I can't wait for full communization. Whoa there, big fella. <laughs> <laughs> you hate your job so you can't wait for communism take a step back the last chapter talks a lot about universal basic income so that's the most communist idea i think i entertain to put it in perspective a little bit universal basic income they estimate would be like 50 billion dollars all right who wants to run a little bit of numbers i guess this will be the main focus for the middle part of our chapter here 
We learned last month through Outliers. I don't know if I mentioned the actual statistics. I don't like to run numbers on podcasts. It's bad for listenership, apparently. So there are only 600 billionaires in the United States of America. Think about that. 600 people. Your graduating class in high school was probably half that size. And you know basically who everybody in your grade and the grade above was. If you don't know who they were, then you know of them. There's only 600 billionaires in the United States of America. This is a very small group of people. And they own a large amount of the wealth. David Graeber keeps talking about the 1%. So it is somewhat relevant. But that 1% also pays 50% of the taxes. (laughs) So you can't be too mad at these people all the time as well. So for reference, in the news right now, people are talking about the wall. Donald Trump wants to build a wall between us and Mexico. Every great empire has a wall. He says it would cost $3 billion to build that wall. This past month, we approved an Israeli defense bill for $5 billion. If you took a poll from the average American saying, do you think $5 billion of our tax dollars should go to Israel? I think you'd get like 5% of people to say yes. But if you polled all of America saying, should we build a wall? Literally 30% of America voted for this guy. So (laughs) it's only... $3 billion. So for the amount of that stupid bill we just signed, this whole wall issue could be done with. But it has to be part of the political theater. So like I said, realizing we're part of a game is when you're able to put things in context a little bit more and not get angry about these things. When I was doing that Sunday Scary Show, I was getting angry about conspiracies because I was invested. I was bleeding heart college student, man. I still get a little bit passionate about these things, but I laugh it off a little bit more because i realize i'm not going to make the change the best you could do is illuminate other people so yeah this whole wall thing is not really a big deal it's only three billion dollars as for ubi that got me into this this kid working at a college store waiting for full communization bernie sanders he's now running for president also this past month he wants to forgive college debt something else all these uber drivers are talking about oh i could get free education 50 billion dollars that would cost that is nothing dude we spend four trillion dollars a year as a nation this would forgive everybody's loan debt because all right i don't want to get too lost in all this because this is like a whole nother book i'm gonna have to read and review but you are coercing 17 year olds into taking two hundred thousand dollars of debt by signing for college scholarships or going to college everybody they know my 600 people i know my dunbar's number my graduating class Everybody goes to college after high school. That's the way the world works now. You are taught to stay in line at school. If you don't go to college and take on this debt, there is something wrong with you. So I really don't look down on people for having college debt. If you do, you wouldn't be into hearing this debate at all, this internal debate that I'm having. This is how issues get solved. But $50 billion it would cost to forgive everybody's college loans. I don't think we should do that because it would devalue the college degree but i'm saying it's 100 percent doable we have so much wealth in this nation we waste so much of it so universal basic income is estimated to cost three trillion dollars the u.s annual spending is 4.5 billion dollars so it's not impossible for us to do this thing we would have to give up on other things But yeah, that's just a little bit of me running over the numbers for you guys. Sorry to unleash my autism on you. But there's not that many billionaires in America. And when you look at this 
as a game of scale, we could be doing a lot of the things we want to as a society. It's just nobody's taking accountability for their money, for our money. Also in this chapter about how people in bullshit jobs regularly report themselves unhappy, the real reason is because knowing that you don't have power in a situation is mentally bad for you. They found out upon doing brain scans recently, brain scans on little kids, that there is immense amounts of endorphins and dopamines that gets released in your brain around the age when you learn that your actions have an effect on the world. Somewhere around three years old, you learn that when you scream in public, everybody stares at you. So you love that because you're getting everybody's attention. Or when you knock over blocks, your mom is going to come running over to see what's wrong. And once you realize that that thing clicks in your brain, learning that you have a little bit of power, toddlers at that age are a lot happier. And so this affects us just in our adult brains as well. When you go to a place of work for 40 hours every single week, knowing that what you did was pointless except for resulting in a lump sum of wealth being put in your bank account, it's terrible for you because you know you have no power. This is shown in working class couples who win the lottery rarely go broke. If you come into a small lottery sum, you're not supposed to change your lifestyle. You're just supposed to use it as a cushion, just living minus the anxiety of the fact that this could go to shit at any moment. That weighing on people in their daily life is terrible as well, but that's how most of us live with no middle class. <laughs> and then there's these people who win the lottery and just spend it all in a day. Trump is the poor man's idea of a rich man. He eats McDonald's for every year, has a supermodel wife, was on the WWE. You know, when I was a kid, that seems exactly like what I would want to do if I had all this money. But I make minimum wage and live in a studio, you know, recording a studio out of a studio, motherfucker. <laughs> so... Going after that poor idea of a rich man's life is bound for failure. And so when you win a lottery, just keep doing what you're doing because that way you know you actually have some value or an effect in your community and in your life, which is uh, David's point here. Knowing you don't have an effect or value is terrible for your brain. In the book, obviously there were levels of measuring serotonin levels when people get a new job. And in the first two months it peaks, you get excited because you're learning new skills. And then after that, you get extremely depressed. It goes lower than your baseline before you started this because you realize you don't have any power and you're just doing these new things as like a little robot. My couple minute explanation there though was with words rather than scientific studies like Graeber had. So you could go read the book if you want to learn that. Human beings, this will lead us a little bit into a discussion about this shift, how bullshit work kind of started when humans moved into the agricultural world. Whereas when we used to be hunter-gatherers, we were either hunting or gathering during the day. And then when the sun set, we'd make a fire and then dance and entertain each other. But they were always busy. When agriculture started, we finally had enough food to have spare time. And so, no coincidence, this is also when war started, because we had enough food to chill around and then make weapons and be like, hey, let's just go take over those people's food instead of actually having to work and make our own food. <laughs> so, both good and bad will come when there is an abundance, but we are definitely different animals since this change in the agricultural age. We are more so domesticated animals, whereas hunter-gatherer humans used to be wild animals. David Graeber gave a really good description of all this as he was able to because he's an anthropologist. And so right around this time of when agriculture started, it's also when literature, language starts, and then religion starts as well. And this slogan starts getting passed around, like in the Bible, Bible, 
idle hands make for the devil's work, I think is how it goes. It became an adage that doing nothing is a sin. It's bad for you. Whereas at the same time, male serfs were only working like 12 hours a day out in the field. And then during the harvest, one month a year, they would actually work for 40 hours a week. But most of history, people are only working now since agriculture for like 12 hours a week. During the harvest, they would even have the mom and the kids help. And like I mentioned before in today's show... In times of war, war was just created along with agriculture. So now when long periods when the men had to go off, the kids and the family would just do the 12 hours of work a week. So it's, <laughs> we're not used to this working on all eight cylinders as the current humans do, which is why so many of us have these new mental illnesses like depression and anxiety. Just like I read um, Sex at Dawn, a book about old humans, cavities are a new thing because we have all this refined sugar now. Just like depression and anxiety are a new thing. Unsupervised serfs, these men at the lowest bottom of the totem pole, were happier than the average man today. I don't really know how you measure that, but they are said to have lived more fulfilled, happier lives, even though we view those men as slaves to the crown. In the future, I'm sure we're going to be viewed as wage slaves as well because we only have a certain amount of time and being born into a society where you can't just exist, you have to be doing something for somebody, we are obviously going to be looked at as a wage slave in the future. This is going to be a hippie thought, but I've been having this one a little bit recently. Like you're born into a world without clothes and you have to wear clothes everywhere you go. Just like this thing, you're you can't just exist in the world. This machine that we set up makes for you having to be doing something and contributing. You can't just exist. If I was a prehistoric man, I would probably walk around with like hammers that I made out of stone. There would probably be dudes just existing, eating, and trying to meet women. And I would just go around and try to sell them my new hammers. Caveman Nick. Ooh, you want to buy hammer? You smash things women want to smash you. Ooh. See, I'm already, I got my fucking caveman salesman pitched down as well. The point is of that trippy thought is that you should be allowed to just exist in the world. There shouldn't be these penalties to not doing anything. Not doing something should be the standard. It shouldn't be the standard to be forced to do things. That is the definition of a slave. There, I literally just broke it to the basis of its logic. You have to do something otherwise you're persecuted that is the definition of a slave there's no difference of current existence in you know we live in a society so there's a price you got to pay is the society worth the price mm. and the society doesn't let me hang brain some would say no <laughs> so let's wrap up chapter three here and all the mental violence that's going psychological violence that comes along with having a bullshit job david talks about kind of comparing to my hippy-dippy ideas about being naked and wage slaves. <laughs> he says, One person's time cannot belong to someone, but their services can. But this is a very American idea. If you go to, like, rural Asia, they still refer to time as two boils of rice. Like, if I'm in Japan and I want to get to the next city over, they'll be like, oh, it's about a boil of rice's walk away. Just like we learned in Accessory to War. People tell time different ways. In America, time is money. You hear people say things in America like budgeting time. Oh, I was saving time. And all of these words came into the lexicon around the advent of the punch clock. Just like Henry, Cor Henry Ford invented the 40-hour work week, this is when humans start looking at time as money. Ford has 
without knowing or maybe knowingly turned everybody into time sluts we're all time sluts we all want our hours you know i'm too lazy to ask a girl to go on a date i mean i don't want to have to pay for the date but some girls are too lazy to even go on the date let me let me rephrase that i would be too lazy too to go on some dates because i'm too stingy with my time even if it was being paid for and so what david is trying to say here is that people buy your hours not your wage slave you're selling your hours away is his way of putting it but when you're selling your hours this encourages you not to work too hard it's just like expectations if you meet somebody and do something they're going to expect you to do that every time you meet them and so if you keep your expectations low then people aren't going to expect that much from you i used to put out a ton of snapchats when snapchat was the hot new thing i would every single day i would have a my story up and then for a while people are like dude what happened you fell off where's your snapchats it created an expectation like the movie holes they're out there digging holes for no fucking reason they're encouraged not to work too hard otherwise their master will be like you dug eight holes yesterday you better dig 10 today and so now with the advent of the punch clock talking about time as this ever slipping away way to make money we've all just become time sluts or wage slaves or as david likes to call it bullshit jobs of the last examples in the chapter David uses, it was a guy who was told he was not allowed to read while watching a museum exhibit for fires. He was watching for fires. And so the two seconds that it would take him to put the book down in the actual event of a fire was that really worth the months of his life that were robbed sitting at that desk where he wasn't allowed to do anything. This guy could have been writing the next great American novel, but for the two seconds in case of actual emergency who wasn't allowed to do anything makes no sense think about if we actually did that to the fire department the only reason that we're not pricks and make them do something while they're chilling around the firehouse is because those men's life are on the line there's no illusion of your life being on the line when you're in the office so then they could treat you like garbage and this guy wasn't even allowed to write a book while he was watching for fake fires a job that probably shouldn't exist in the first place when you can have a fire when you could have a fire detector a smoke detector so it's kind of all about expectations like we don't expect the fire department to start a charitable organization while they're not putting out fires which is a majority of the day but people don't have the same expectation for cops for whatever reason i mean theoretically <laughs> i I, I had a moped stolen from me this is tragic in my life, dude. I've gotten over it. I've laughed about it. I've cried about it now. But my most valuable asset, the most expensive thing I've ever purchased was stolen out from under me. It was a $1,500 moped. And when I called a police report in, you know, some people say the cops work for us. The police laughed in my face when I was like, when can I expect a follow-up? How often do you guys return stolen small vehicles and they laughed in my face because this was the last they were ever going to think about this thing and why are we paying taxes to these people who are just out to fuck us over create new laws every year to get us in trouble with it's a game of cops and robbers and like it or not if you're not a cop you're the robber they're after you i'm trying to make this point with uh expectations and our view towards the cops people say the cops work for us i brought it up before if i don't give the government a third of my yearly wages if i don't pay my taxes they will send two men with guns to my doorstep and put me in a cage if i don't give them my things so we work up these 
theories of expectations of what people should be doing, but we only apply them in certain cases. Obviously not in the actual case of the police officers. So that example gives you a little bit more of an idea of why I see the government as a mob and a place where you could just go to grab power. That's what a mob is. But police are even bullshit jobs. I know a bunch of you are shitting your pants right now. What if there's a, a burglar I saw on the news that people are being hate-crimed? None of that's happening. You know how this worked before the year of 1920? If you thought someone was going to be after your family or your home, you hire someone to protect you. Do you think there's a reason that somebody's going to be breaking into your house? No. Then why are you scared of it? You're being irrational, and the media has a grip on your testicles, and they squeeze it when they want you to be scared. <laughs> yeah, you feel that? That's them playing you like a guitar, man. So having a police force is just like having a standing army amongst us. People used to hire protection before the 1920s, and you own a gun. The average police response time is over 15 minutes. That's plenty of time to rob you and rape your wife. Sorry, buy a gun if you actually want to protect yourself. That's one of the would-you-rathers in the book of would-you-rathers, but I'm going to skip that one because it's literally just a political debate, and now you know how I stand. So yeah, the cops don't work for us. They punch a clock just like every other government worker does. Wrapping up chapter two, if you have a bullshit job, you're more likely to be unhappy consciously or subconsciously. You might wonder why it's harder for you to get up in the morning. Maybe you're sad about where you're going to spend eight hours of your day. So yeah, I hope you guys learned something new there. There wasn't even police forces. <laughs> the What we call police force is this weird new entity that's popped up within the last hundred years. And they get more power every single year without submitting to any of our requests. Cough, cough, wear a body cam. You have to, we're paying you. <laughs> but we don't have the power, so we don't have the say. And life goes on. Let's do chapter four. What is it like to have a bullshit job? Oh, let me tell you what it's like to have a bullshit job. I could go on for 40 hours a week about what it's like. David Graeber has some really good examples here, some more tweets, some more quotes. So let's get into it. When you're comparing a democracy to a police state, so like a Soviet Union, you accidentally describe the police state the same as you would describe a workplace, which is just slave-like. So if you look at the system of the bread lines, which Bernie Sanders said was a good idea, bread lines from communist Russia. If you look at the way those bureaucracies are set up, the, the people who hand out the bread, the people who are supposed to oversight of the means of production, it's all just uh, set up like a bureaucracy the same way your modern workplace will be. And there's a lot of useless positions in there. And something we learned last chapter was you want to have some sort of power in your job. Otherwise, it shrinks your brain. It feels like you're in solitary confinement. It doesn't light up that toddler part of your brain when you realize that you have control over this world. And what makes us human is the fact that we have the ability to create and run simulations. Dogs eat poop on the ground and eat chocolate, not being able to run the simulation, knowing they'll get worms in their stomach. Humans are humans because we can create things with our jobs. And when you go somewhere for eight hours a day and act like a robot, it's bad for your brain. And that's what it's like to have a bullshit job. A couple of the testimonies now here came from substitute teachers making 60000 a year. What kind of a sub's making sixty k <laughs> To do Sudoku and crossword puzzles. But these people were saying, I don't really mind that the fact that my job is bullshit. So just like flack catchers we learned about before, if you know that your job is bullshit, you can actually take advantage of it and will probably be happy with the fact. So these people were messing around with high schoolers. A couple more tax 
officials in France wrote in, and they were saying their job is just a big joke. They're kind of seen as the substitute teachers here, France tax officials. And 40% of those Frenchies that responded said that their job was actually meaningful. And regarding these eight-hour jobs where you go in and act like a robot, the point of those jobs not being taken over by a robot is that this job is emotional labor, which is you're being paid there to fake excitement to help a customer. Oh, how can I help you today? How you doing, sir? How's your day going? You know, all that stuff. Oh my God. There have been studies that that is more psychologically taxing on your body to have to fake emotions than to actually go around a work site and lug around a cement all day. And this is where women get thrown in a lot, and I have a lot of sympathy for in these emotional labor jobs. Most front desk people are women. Some of the attests that we have here in Chapter 4 for the women that would work front desks at the office were also tasked with putting together a summer work party. This kind of goes back to the old home lady who they were paying her 30k when they could have just used the 30k to buy cookies and cakes for the summer work party and instead of having this girl pretend to plan one. But these things are a mindfuck more than anything because you're told that you're not actually working hard or you're slacking if you don't stay for 10 hours a day, stay longer than the boss. Meanwhile, in the middle of the summer, they're going to start giving you half-day Fridays or telling you you're allowed to come in in jeans. It just doesn't make sense. It's hard for your brain to play those two simulations at once when on the normal day you have to go in in this monkey suit with a noose around your neck and pretend that you're dressed to the nines when you look like a schmuck. It's like, do I actually have to work 60 hours a week or do you want me to just be here? Do I actually have to look nice to do great work or can I show up in a good pair of jeans and a white t-shirt and I'm more comfortable to get more work done? But no, let's just keep doing things the way we've been doing. Tradition, right? The real fact of the matter of these little psychological tricks that they play and these women in emotional labor jobs can attest to, Grabner says from an anthropological standpoint this is a way to control your creative output because it is so taxing to be emotionally invested in something to actually care about a customer's issue is takes a lot on your brain it's good to be able to help another human but it's mentally taxing to actually care and help someone when you get home that day after work you're going to crash harder so this is just draining your creative output and then creates cognitive dissonance for people like the office party planners who I've been talking about. And the water gets even grayer in these situation because a lot of times these fake rules like never leave before your boss. These rules are meant to be broken, but they're meant to be broken so that you can be written up on them. This is the same tactic David Grabner mentioned how law enforcement uses blanket terms like that anti-tax avoiding law from before same logic behind police using the blanket term probable cause to search people for whatever they want oh you look suspicious that's probable cause now i get to look through all your belongings (laughs) just like that law you're not allowed to try to do business with anybody who does bad things and so i think this gave some merit back to me looking up to david gravener talking about the workplace as a police state and then freelancing is more of a democracy so workplace our current system of you know rising the ranks climbing the corporate ladder just getting control of more people underneath you (laughs) a pyramid scheme but the only reason it isn't scheme is because companies create actual value in the vein of talking about a police state 
where would we be without talking about prisoners? Prisoner is always <laughs> one of the controversies. I'm a criminal justice major. Is that when prisoners come out, they usually recidivize, they commit another crime and go back. But their second crime is usually a, a bigger heist. Like they go, they try to up their level of crime. And this is because when you're in prison, you get to meet with all the other smartest prison minds. It's a hive where you get to go and work on your craft. <laughs> And so this is similar, if you are keeping with Graebner's analogy, co-workers in the workplace as prisoners, they will share better ways to get away with faking working. So like, hey, this happens all the time. If you work at like a pizza place, you're like, hey, dude, I usually just don't do this extra step that you're supposed to because it saves me time and nobody knows and there's absolutely no repercussions. I've been doing this for months. And then you learn how to do things a little bit more efficient whether that's illegal or not. And so this happens with prison. This happens in the workplace. I remember at my first office job outside of college, they didn't make us, I'm putting up air quotes, but they highly encouraged us to communicate with one another over the G-chat. It wasn't exactly G-chat. It was set up on their company website. And everything we were saying was being monitored by our managers and then their managers. And we were being, every day, we were encouraged to say three different things and like talk to each other. It's like, I understand morale in a workplace, but this is very obviously not a good way to get people to bond or implement morale. This is a good way to surveil so I would just post things like, gee, isn't this work fun? I love answering phones and just absolute malarkey like that. Yeah, turn the microscope inwards after or during the episode. You'll be noticing a lot more bullshit in your workplace. And then I alluded to this a little bit before, but at some jobs you can actually get in trouble for doing other people's duties. Uh, in the book, the story was about this guy at a gaming company, worked for several companies like Blizzard and Activision and stuff, and... He was so bored at his level that he started his own sound design project. So different little sound effects that they can add into the game. These games now have to have millions of different effects. So he was just like, hey, I'm going to contribute here. And then once he submitted this sound design project he did in his own time, the boss threatened to report him because this sound project was actually another guy's job. So... They told him to absolutely cease working on this project, otherwise he was going to report him to another higher-up boss. Goes to show you that this middle manager didn't even need to exist in the first place. <laughs> they told him to stop doing excess work because we already hire somebody else to do that. So now he's back to wasting more time and then winds up quitting this job and working for another gaming company where he demotes himself to be a game tester. He found that to be more entertaining than he was the step above that at the time in the production line and then when he was done testing for a while he just moved into a van and winds up playing guitar so this guy had it all you know the money the dream job and that wasn't enough for him because there was too much bullshit involved for him another story then following this one about a few temps at one of these agencies filing a report about their supervisor and the next day being told not to show up to work. And this was because the level above the supervisor saw the complaint and was like, okay, these people aren't just going with the flow. They're actually <laughs> fighting the fact that they're supposed to do nothing and aren't allowed to do anything. So they needed to be silenced and this guy fired them. And then another example about a guy 
having a panic attack <laughs> because he had this job for a couple years where he would design sidebar ads and when he found out that a grand total of like five people had ever clicked on the ads that he had made he had a panic attack because he's like holy shit everything i do every single day nobody actually tries to make their dick bigger with one simple trick or find horny local singles in their area <laughs> he just found out that his salary just comes from the fact that he's filling a position so you can see here there is an extra level of psychological tension of doing fake work rather than just sitting around and knowing you're sitting around in the book, another anthropological term, David calls them rituals of humiliation. These are just like the little things that you'll do in the workplace to reinforce the ever so important power dynamics. And everybody already knows who the slackers are in the workplace. You pretty much know who the compulsive overworkers are as well, who can't just be standing around, always need to be doing something. And some people are so compulsive that they need you to be doing something as well because it hurts their brain that you cannot just be stagnant. And part of enforcing this mentality are these little rituals of humiliation he calls basically the monthly workplace evaluations, monthly reviews. These are in a lot of jobs. And it's just to show you that, hey, this mid-level manager has control of your fate in this company. They have control of how many demerits you have, yada, yada, yada. It's just to reinforce the show and to get you to go along with the show. The example in the book for the rituals of humiliation was a school teacher in Boston was preschool teacher was making eight twenty five an hour and she reported her carpal tunnel vanishing the second that her underpaid overly exerted preschool teacher job ended so did her workplace ailment and this happens very frequently it's an ailment related to anxiety carpal tunnel and depression which both of those are inflammation inducing you know when you get chubby fingers or um you don't look pretty that day you don't look skinny or whatever your mood in the workplace seriously affects that as soon as she left this preschool teacher job she said her back stopped hurting her carpal tunnel went away the point david graber here is that usually where you're finding the pain isn't the source of the issue like people always complain about their back hurting it's probably because you're on your feet for too long during the day or you're wearing the wrong shoes that is a source point of pain for your back your feet and so a lot of times people don't put two and two together and this lady was able to quit her job and her carpal tunnel went away. You're not getting carpal tunnel just because you're typing a lot. The human body is capable of running marathons. You know, your fingers could probably type a 500-word essay every single day for a year. It's when you start panicking psychologically and go through a period of depression or stress that you experience a lot of these workplace ailments. And that's a bullshit aspect to jobs for sure. Moving along, I like this part of the book. It was really interesting. We have a quote here to get into it. More about these rituals of humiliation. David draws the connection between the BDSM community, you know, sadomasochism, and the workplace, and how these are rituals. People were playing parts here. This was a crazy interesting part of the book. He goes, talking about feminist psychoanalysis, Jessica Benjamin. What Chancer found was that unlike members of actual BDSM subcultures who are entirely aware of the fact they are playing games of make-believe, purportedly normal people in hierarchical environments typically ended up locked in a kind of pathological variation of the same sadomasochism dynamic. 
person on the bottom struggles desperately for approval that can never, by definition, be forthcoming. The person on the top, top going to greater and greater lengths to assert dominance, that both know is ultimately a lie. For if the top were really the all-powerful, confident, masterly being he pretends to be, he wouldn't need to go to such outrageous lengths to ensure the bottom's recognition of his power. And of course, there's also the most important difference between make-believe S&M play and those engaged in the actual due reference to play, and it's a real-life, non-sexual enactments. To sum that up as quick as possible... Our real-life situation is similar to BDSM. You know, we have these laws where we do these rituals of humiliation, performance reviews, where you get told how shitty of a worker you are and how you have so much to improve on. Just like a BDSM session where someone asserts their dominance over someone else. But this is worse in real life because a lot of people don't know the ground rules like the person in a BDSM freak does. They know, all right, I'm allowed to have my hair pulled. I'm allowed to get spanked. I'm allowed to punch this person in the face or whatever. But in the workplace, I'm like holding my phone under my desk trying to day trade stocks. But the counter argument would be, what are you talking about? I sign a contract when I go for a workplace in reality, a lot of BDSM people do sign contracts as well, so there's even more of a similarity. But I would argue that the contracts we sign in the workplace are even less legitimate than the BDSM ones. Because think about it, in the first month at any workplace, you start getting new responsibilities, new things that they test you to do, and your pay grade stays exactly the same. You're not even being held to the actual contract that you signed. You are usually being taken advantage of more. Whereas in BDSM, you got a safe word. If they're doing something I didn't pre-approve to, I could just say the safe word and they're done. The only safe word in the workplace is I quit. And that's just terminating the relationship. You know, the sick truth is when I say the safe word to my partner, they're going to stop dripping wax on me and they'll immediately treat me like another human. As soon as you say the safe word, it goes, holy shit, there's burning wax on your skin. Are you okay? I need to get this off of you. You're another human. But in these fucked up office charades that we play, people wind up shooting up entire office complexes because you're trusting this person with your financial stability, with your entire life, and they just give you a fake smile every single morning. So obviously there's this immense psychological break that's happening to most people to some degree where people result in shooting up the place. The place I worked after college, Edgewater Business Park in Massachusetts, there was a shooting rampage. It's just a business park. This is supposed to be where Americans go to make money. There was a mass murder, a massacre, and I worked there. Hey, man, I couldn't say this when I worked there, but I could see why you would want to shoot these fucking places up. It sucks. And it's because you're being submitted to these weird sadomasochistic rules, and you're not allowed to say the safe word. You always have to apply. It's even worse than that. You, you get lucky if someone just slashes your tires after you fire them, but it, there's a lot more on the line. All right, that was a pretty good rant. <laughs>
<laughs> Let's get back into one of David's examples here. We have a government worker here in America. This girl's name was Sheehy. She was a community therapist in the Bronx. So she was working with people who were ex-convicts, and they had to miss work time to go in to have these meetings with her because, you know, she's a government worker, so she's only going to work nine to five. And these people who are trying to restart their lives after prison now have to give up several work hours a week to go talk to this girl, Sheehy, who she knows that her job is counteracting these people's goal, but Sheehy needs to make a living too, hey? The real problem here is she's a therapist, and therapy doesn't work unless you work with it. It's a lot like a psychedelic, you know, you gotta swim with the wave. And a lot of people, when they go into therapy, they're just expecting this giant breakthrough, like you see on TV. <gasps> oh, that's why everything in my life is terrible and blah, 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 blah. In reality, it's going every single week and enacting small changes, behavioral therapy throughout your life. And so Sheehy, working for the NGO, realizes hey, I'm going against these people's mission. I'm actually hurting them when they're just trying to get their two legs back on the ground and make a living and support themselves now being a free man again. They don't need to be wallowing in their problems for an extra hour a week. I'm sure you've heard this adage before that half of therapists are crazier than their patients. When the bottom line to therapy, if you go to therapy school, they tell you the number one thing you have to try to do is just make your patient feel like they have a purpose or to have a goal. Just like I said, people are going to get offended by this episode in this book. It's because people find their purpose through their employment. So yeah, Shishi was actively denouncing from these ex-convicts' purposes. Her bullshit jobs was even more of a shit job because she was implementing shit in other people's life, like the RA example from before. We have another story from an NGO. This girl's name, Mina. She would harp on homeless people to get their national insurance numbers and proof of income so that the government could tax them. But she too realized her job was a shit job because she was threatening to make recently not homeless people homeless again. And this is counterintuitive because most rational people are motivated by reward, not punishment. Think about it. If I said, you have to eat that whole peanut butter sandwich and I will give you a $10 bill, or you have to eat that whole peanut butter sandwich or you are going to get a spanking. You are more likely to eat the sandwich for the money than you would be to just take a spanking. I don't know. That, I can't really come up with an example. That was absolute rubbish. But you get the point. The reward system in the human brain responds better to knowing that you're going to receive something. So Mina realized this with her NGO and realized that she was hurting the homeless people just like she he was hurting the ex-convicts. I think these two lovely ladies in their NGO government jobs... Did a pretty good job summarizing chapter four and what it is like to have a bullshit job. And the point is it could be psychologically taxing and hard on the psyche altogether. And that's going to wrap up chapter four for us. We got chapter five here. Why are bullshit jobs proliferating? Good question, David Grabener. 
at the end of a cycle, economies are vast engines of producing nothing. There's so much excess wealth that it needs to be extracted to the top as fast as possible. So, you know, like scams pop up throughout all the societies in human history. There's never been one where there isn't like a bourgeoisie class to extract wealth from. There's always a bunch of underlings who are the means of production who is controlled by the upper class. And David wrote that book in 2011. It's debt the first 5,000 years we might be getting into that one eventually down the road but he starts talking about why bullshit jobs are proliferating because the american economy is getting to the point where it's such a vast engine of producing nothingness the wealth is starting to suck up towards the top which is why we see the middle classes shrinking for the first time ever and the both ends are growing the ultra rich and the ultra poor are both getting bigger and the scary thing here he gets into now is how the U.S. is no longer a production economy. We are a service economy. We're not manufacturing. We're not an agricultural economy. We haven't even been since the 20s. And this is how empires usually die. But China is still manufacturing. David's previous book, some of those ideas are bleeding into the current one we can see. But when there are things like giant crashes in the market, it exposes these types of scams. David, as we learned, was very invested in the uh, Occupy Wall Street in the biggest crash, and we got to see where there are scams in our system. That's when Enron fell, you know, Bernie Madoff. This was a corporate conglomeration with skyscrapers in the biggest cities of America, and it was all just a business of people doing nothing. It's all just bullshit. It's like when you're looking at, <laughs> at a Trump Tower, a big gold building, you're basically just looking at laundered money. And it's often an eyesore because it's just this giant gold building, except for an AC where it actually looks like it's in, it's at home. The only Trump building, you know, next to the Golden Nugget, Harrah's and those other gold buildings. It's all right. But stop being such an eyesore. We have a quote here from Mr. David Graber as this was a topic in the chapter. He goes, I don't think in ideological terms. I never have, Obama said, continuing on the health care theme. Everybody who supports single-payer health care says, look at all this money we would have by saving from insurance and paperwork. That represents 1 million, 2 million, 3 million jobs filled by people who are working at Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Kaiser, or other places. What are we doing with them? Where are we employing them? As Obama would say it. If you see Obama as black Jesus, you probably hear that quote and go, yeah, jobs for three million more people. But in reality, these are jobs in an industry that is completely fluffed up by government funds and they are doing nothing but moving money around. And that's three million positions he admitted to creating that don't have to be there with Obamacare. And all these people are still living on the streets and all that. I think that was my point there. <laughs> How do all those jobs those three million jobs he created at the snap of a finger with no value or no demand for those jobs he just created them how does that affect our economy well when i volunteered at a hospital at 16 years of age like i said before you see a lot of shit they give us these carts to wheel down to the basement just medical waste to dispose of and we're talking about get half full things of medicine people were just throwing out and nurses doctors nobody knows how much the supplies that they're working with actually costs. They just charge everything through insurance. Oh, this person needs this ointment? Just charge their insurance. Nobody cares. It doesn't matter what kind of business runs like that. No business could ever run like that where you don't know how much any of your actual product works. You just go ahead and 
charge everybody as much as you want. Another example in the book was a paid protection insurance guy in Europe, basically like Obamacare of Europe he works for. The way he explained it was, if you're paid to fix a leaky pipe, do you fix the pipe or let it keep leaking and keep getting paid? Obviously the latter. Consumers and taxpayers foot the bills anyway, so why not just let it keep leaking, just like all the nurses and doctors. Just throw out all the extra stuff. We don't know, know how much that's worth or how much people should actually be paying for this surgery. Just let insurance deal with it, and then the uh, taxpayers and, and, and insurance will foot the bill. And that affects the whole system. That's why insurance is impossible to afford. There really should be, if there was a free market for insurance, there would be the McDonald's of insurance. And as a 22-year-old guy, I could probably get away with that plan for a few years because, let's face it, I'm in my 20s. I'll probably get five checkups within the next decade, maybe. So obviously, I don't want to be paying for a lot of insurance when I'm not going to be using it a lot. So if we had a free market system in insurance, we would see a lot more affordability. Well, Obama just admitted to creating 3 million pointless jobs that we are all footing the bill for. Now, the counter argument for this part of the chapter is kind of how people and politicians argue that globalization and regulation will make for a need for more jobs because you know we're dealing with so many more people but that doesn't even take into account digitization this next part of the chapter is a little bit more in review of chapter two when we described all the types of bullshit jobs and the feudal aspects of it david describes how we are slowly as a society sliding into a redistributive process that's what this whole managerialism leads us to it's scaring me even more now that bernie sanders said he's entering the race that there is a real socialist threatening to take over america that's not what america is about we are not a socialist nation but as we grow it's a very enticing idea for humans we always lean towards socialism because we're lazy if someone else could do the work why should i but back in the feudal day, we were talking about means of production a little bit. Peasants and craftsmen produce most of the things. That's where most of the wealth comes from. But the clergy and the royalty were the upper class. They're the ones that reaped most of the rewards and got to have all the luxuries of society back then. And now we have this class still today, but it's disguised as, you know, banks too big to fail. It's supposed to be the free market. If you fail, you're out of the game and you get taken over. But if you're big enough as a bank, the lobbyists can write laws so that you have to be bailed out, which makes no sense. You can lobby your way into impunity. So there's no real freedom in that market at all. Dude, if the founding fathers saw too big to fail and the fact that we bailed out these well, I mean, the fact that the federal government exists would have the founding fathers shit their pants, but the fact that they bailed out these banks would have them just piss on the White House and say, start over. This is exactly what we were fearing, start it over. It's what the founding fathers were trying to escape, a redistributive system. That's what the kings were. They took all the means of production from the farmers and the craftsmen, and they give it to the clergy and everybody else. And this is what's happening with these lawmakers, the bankers. They make and control all the money. They fuck up with our money, and then they get impunity from that. And if it was actually up to a vote, I'm thinking the average American who has to surrender a third of his wealth would say, hold up. They made a bad investment, and they're asking me, some guy who's working at a McDonald's, to bail them out. That is a rich, rich joke. <laughs> but when you don't have a choice and your voted representative doesn't actually represent you, which is our current system of government, you wind up paying for other people's mistakes. So we are in a system of redistribution. You can't argue with that. 2008 crisis there. 
the income tax. This is a huge truth bomb. If you don't know this fact, brace yourself. The income tax didn't exist until the 1930s. Before the 1930s, you got to keep what you made. You did not have to surrender any of your money to this crazy government. This is a new idea, people. We are just born into it now. This is just some new thing. And now this could really, I could easily see myself slipping into a libertarian tangent on this. But if you're new to this logic, just run it over for yourself a couple times because there are no flaws. It is sound and heard. You can go over this logic literally forward, backwards, upside down. And you can see that the implementation of the income tax is very, very unpatriotic and does not stand for liberty. So let's wrap this chapter up. I don't know where I was going with that, really. Uh, David kind of talks about, for his final example, the Elephant Tea Factory, which is outside of France. And it wasn't until the 60s it was purchased by the American company Lipton. And they automated most of the ground level there. And Lipton was able to increase Elephant Tea Factory's production by 50%. But since then, the 60s, the profits have increased by billions. But it's not like everybody in the company gets a raise. The factory workers are still making the same standard of living as before, even if the value of the company increases, which is not like how we used to see with Henry Ford, even the dick that created the 40-hour work week. He had the adage that all Ford workers should be able to afford a Model T. And what do you see now? Tesla workers working in the mall? What? You can see in these real-life examples how wealth just keeps getting extracted and extracted. Because corporate systems just keep underlings in the same position. These are the pencil pushers we were talking about, whatever David Graeber's term was. And then the corporate system will just add on new job titles to get more tax breaks. Like Amazon is picking its new headquarters. The reason they have so much leverage as to where they want to pick is because they're getting offered different tax break packages from different cities all over the country. This relates to this tea company in France in the 60s was like, why don't we just shut this place down and move our production? And so that's exactly what they did. They outsourced all elephant tea production to Poland. And then there they were able to decrease the underling wages even more, which is what happened to American production in the 1900s. And now it's almost completely internationalized. We don't make any steel in America anymore. We buy cheap Chinese steel. And this is how we see David explaining managerialism is the new form of feudalism. Where there are laws in motion is different than where capitalism is in motion. It's a totally different system you're dealing with when people don't just have the freedom to deal with their trade on their own and have to listen to market reforms. Look at like the, in medieval times, there used to be swordsmiths and there would be like a clan of swordsmiths and they all knew how much the going rate of steel or copper was or whatever you wanted to make your next weapon out of. There didn't need to be an international review board of how much this review board thinks how much you should be making your crafts worth. It's a way to scrounge more power, just like the union workers I mentioned last week. On one end, you have union organizers taking your union fees, and on the other end, you have the right wing taxing you out the ass for the military. So these market reforms are sold to us as going to make the government more efficient and make for trade more efficient, when in reality, whoever lobbied for this bill is really just taking the latest cut, and then they're setting up for another sub-sub-sub-subcontractor position to be set up again. 
you have a little bit better of an idea where money is being siphoned off through these bullshit jobs now there through chapter five that was why bullshit jobs are proliferating and it's kind of just because our economy is ballooning as well so of course the amount of these internal jobs will inflate as well let's move along we're on chapter six why do we as a society not object to the growth of pointless employment I could think of a couple reasons why we wouldn't object. If you're getting paid to do nothing, you're obviously not going to want to do something. You're going to want to keep doing nothing. A better way to put that is usefulness does not equal pay in the current society. It's not value equals pay. You can get paid to do some stupid shit in today's world. Like playing video games, you can be a... When else in the history of time could you have been a millionaire to play any game? And also, why would we not object to the growth of pointless employment? You can't stop the machine now. This is already in motion. We're moving towards, what is it called, the singularity when everything turns into one. And as that grows, the internet grows, which is the first time we have all been able to be connected. And it shows us what we really want. We love, you know, cats, dogs, starting our own garage band, all these types of weird projects. But the thing we value, quote unquote value, where the money is, seems to be surrounded around spreadsheets and competing with work hours. I'll sprinkle a quote in here from Mr. Graber. He goes, Basically, we speak of value when we talk about economic affairs, which usually comes down to those human endeavors in which people are paid for their work or their actions are otherwise directed toward getting money. Value appears when that is not the case. For instance, housework and childcare are surely the single most common forms of unpaid work. Hence, we constantly hear about the importance of family values. So value isn't always just surrounded around money. You know, I find maternity leave to be more valuable than the $6,000 I might actually be making at my bullshit job. I would much rather be there for the initial development of the life of my offspring. The value isn't in the money. Sometimes there's much more value in the human value. That's what I took from that quote about slacktivism from David Gerbner. So the point I think David Graeber is trying to make with the chapter, I don't know why he didn't just name it this, is what do we value as humans? A couple more of these Twitter accounts he starts referring to again were of people with bullshit jobs making six figures, but the money wasn't bringing them happiness. You've probably heard the study before that after $60,000, anything above that doesn't actually affect your level of happiness. After that, all your needs are met, you know, everything's basically on you. But if you're making 30k a year, you're probably worrying a little bit about how you're going to make rent next month. And so once you're making that much money, you probably have enough free time as well to be able to start to figure out what you value. And honestly, not a lot of people make it this far in life. You see a lot of older men like, oh, I don't have a hobby. What do I do now? I already made my money. It's like, that's the journey of life. That's what you're supposed to be finding out the entire time. You're not just supposed to be distracted by this corporate ladder which is a great way to distract yourself if you're obsessed with money. And this brings us back to the thing of value. Did you value money your whole life or did you value something else? And we see this happening in millennial job advertisements now online. I, I'm looking at job advertisements all the fucking time. The way these things are marketed is, like I said, half day Fridays, we host a friendly office happy hour. That's supposed to be valued and desired that you have this group of people that's supposed to be like a workplace family now. 
and that's the same with the real estate you're supposed to as a millennial want to live in this little downtown area where you work play eat do all that together and you have a little sense of community as well the values are shifting in the comedy community you see people get spots at higher levels based on their social media followings and that's not just the entertainment industry even if you want to be like a brand ambassador for some office you have to have like 1000 followers if you want to be able to post for yik yak or twitter or whatever it is there's this whole new form of value in the digital age it, it's kind of just looking like followers is the new accommodation but I don't know what people value to get out of the workplace and what they value as a barrier to entry for some positions is rapidly changing. Even uh, vacations are being marketed different to people. The poor man's vacation, a $300 music festival where you go and live in mud and feces for a week, but you get to dance, do drugs and have sex. That is social value. Music festivals bring in a big social value, whereas you could take a $3,000 trip and go to the Maldives and be pampered on a private beach, but there's very little social value there. So yeah, value's changing, people. Value's definitely shifting as time goes on, and maybe that is why people aren't objecting to pointless employment nowadays. In Belgium, they went through a government shutdown, a constitutional crisis for 541 days their government was disbanded. Hey, did you guys just realize for the past two months when our government was disbanded? No, life goes on. Nothing happens. Are we going to get a tax break? No, that's bullshit. Life goes on. I'm going to complain about it because I actually care about my money. But life goes on, man. Belgium did over a year without a government. This is a real place in the world. It can happen. There was an example in the book. Uber was operating without a CEO for a while. Just more examples of bullshit jobs, even at the highest levels. There was an example over the past decades. Ireland shut their banks down for a while. And you think, you know, people were burning money then to keep the house warm, right? Hell no. They just started using checks as the new currency. So, oh no, I, I don't have a bank. I can't take $500 out. You just write a check and people hold on to that check as like a $500 bill. It obviously gets a little bit messy in the future going on, but then you just exchange it for something else. Point being, a lot of these jobs in the government, which you say we need a government to function, obviously not. We just, Belgium did it for over a year. We just did it for two months. So there's obviously a lot of bullshit there in government jobs, but in some sectors of government jobs, in New York City in the 90s, there was a garbage strike. The garbage men weren't making enough money, and it only lasted for 10 days. <laughs> the streets filled up with garbage in New York, and people were like, whatever they want, give them an extra $5 an hour. We don't care. Get the garbage out of our streets. So that is obviously not a bullshit job. There's going to be a vacuum, and people need to keep sanitary. Speaking about being sanitary and bullshit jobs, David went as far to call doctors bullshit jobs he called them placebos because since the 1900s the real reason that the lifespan has increased is because infant mortality keeps going down and then hygiene and nutrition keeps getting better we're cleaner and we eat better there's nothing about seeing your doctor once every year that expands your life expectancy on a on a population level it's about hygiene and nutrition and doctors can even be seen as bullshit in certain levels i've gone to some bullshit doctors who have done friggin allergy tests when i told them i didn't want to don't trust anyone man you a skeptic mindset is what i found is the best way to go around the world and to end this chapter 
let's take it back. Uh, we started the book more talking about when society started, the idea that idle hands are the devil's work started, and these real weird, sick religious ideas arised in ways to manipulate people. And one of the ones here was the twisted idea that some people hold this, that if you enjoy what you do, then you shouldn't be paid for it. It's like, oh, that guy enjoyed fixing my car. Why should I pay him, right? He, he loved doing that. Why should I be paying him? He got his druthers worth doing that. I shouldn't owe him a damn thing. And so just like when society started, idle hands is the devil's work. And we have these weird ideas still stick with us that you shouldn't be allowed to be paid for doing something you enjoy. But it's about shedding these old stupid ideas, just like the, the marketplace. You got to shed the stupid stuff. Not only that, but sometimes we're convinced about the wrong stuff in the past. Just like I was talking about lifespan, I'll give you an easy mind blower. People didn't live till their 30s in medieval times. People were living till 80, 100 years old. It's just that babies kept dying. There were so high of an infant mortality, it bought the average lifespan down to 30 years old. Humans have always been able to live to be 80 years old. It's just that a lot of babies die in our history. So that's why it looks like we don't live that long. And then another common misconception that we we harp on is in medieval times oh you were married by the time you were 13 fuck no medieval times people were partying like crazy if you weren't a servant most people were 99% of men were but if you weren't a servant you were getting married in your 30s so you would go out study the book of the lord go dance and wear your flowing colors talk to a guy in a crow mask you were getting married in your 30s in medieval times one of their mantras they said self-discipline and mastery over desires is what you can do to uh, secure an internship or a spot in the clergy so while people were wandering around the english countryside on their horses you were supposed to be working on yourself and repressing your desires you're just supposed to be a noble man this is literally when chivalry started this is how men learned how to treat women in this time period it wasn't just rape a woman at 16 and do farm work for 100 hours a week that's what you're taught in school but that's not actually what life was like these people would work for 12 hours ride around the country travel meet people work on self-discipline and eventually, if you were wandering for far enough, you could be self-employed, get a spot in the clergy, or just work as an apprentice under someone. Like I said, this is how chivalry started. People were meeting in their 30s. This is when dating started. People were just trying to get laid, so obviously they were trying to be nice. How did I get here? Life expectancy, doctors being bullshit, shutting down the government. I don't know. The, the book kind of went full circle. David Graeber bought it back to the 1500s a little bit. People find dignity and self-worth in what they do for a living, but most people hate their jobs. Just speaking by the numbers, 40% of people hate their jobs, but most people find dignity and self-worth in what they do for a living. So statistically, 40% of people hate themselves, right? But no, you're lying to yourself, you're lying to other people. <laughs> You're just lying to yourself on different levels, usually, with a lot of these jobs. And that's okay. If you realize you're the flat catcher, you're the hitman, it's all good, man. Lie to me, lie to your boss, lie to whoever you need to. Try not to lie to yourself because that's when you start needing to go to therapy like we learned about today. The point here is even in the, in the 1500s all the way up to today. If you define yourself by the way your income comes in, you're going to have to try to do some mental gymnastics to not want to kill yourself. <laughs> the human creature... We are built around having a set of purposes. And so if we feel purposeless, we fail to exist. And, you know, work is noble. 
maybe you paint fruit for a living. I don't find that very valuable. If I want fruit, I'll go look at it. I'll go buy some fruit. Some people have fucking pictures of bowls of fruit in their kitchen and every room in their house. So work isn't valuable, but work is noble. Grinding is noble. Grinding is admirable. And it doesn't mean what you're doing isn't bullshit because it could be bullshit to someone else, but it's not bullshit to you. Everything's on a spectrum, people. So don't be so hard on yourself make a silly youtube video laugh at yourself laugh at me i'm laughing at myself i'm laughing at everything that's what i want to do here and that's going to bring us to the end of chapter six and why is a society we are not objecting to pointless employment maybe because it's free money so let's take a look here at our final chapter chapter seven political effects of bullshit jobs and what can be done about it so moving to the future David Graeber starts this chapter 7 with another quote about the past. It was about how keeping the mob too busy to think, an Orwell quote from Down and Out in Paris and London, his book. If you had to read that book for school, it's about how it's manipulating a, a society, how you get people to do what you want, and it's keeping them too busy to think. So managerial feudalism is what has taken over our country, all these middle management positions and all the bullshit jobs that we've talked about today. David wants to try to be able to get us from a 40-hour work week down to a 15 because society has chosen consumerism over leisure. I touched on before, what has the internet showed us that we love humans? We love spending time with our animals, we love going to the beach, and we love trying to learn a new song on the guitar and sharing it with community. And so, for whatever reason, our society working 40 hours a week acts as if we value consumerism more than we value leisure and family and pets and fun and love. But as we act as a society, David is saying, is different than our desires. I've been doing this thing recently. It's a little bit of a red pill activity. I'll use that term. Just read about it online. You're supposed to not spend any money for three days a week. And you're going, what? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But until you actually try it, you realize how much compulsive shit you actually buy. And compulsive spending is a part of most people's day. Until you bring something to the front of your brain, you don't realize you're doing it. And we live like these little consumerist robots every single day. So try that uh, that activity if you have spending issues, anybody out there. But that's the point is most Americans are doing this thing. When I could get the same rush of endorphins from coming home and, you know, petting my roommate's cat between the head as I could from buying a new t-shirt. It's just a little rush you get and it feels really good. <laughs> Shopaholic, that's where that comes from. The anthropological term David Graeber used was compensatory consumerism. It's basically just like shopping out of not having a life otherwise, having nothing to do, so you just go buy something. It's like <laughs> how consumerism has made it so easy for us to buy a personality now. You could go to H&M any time of the year and get decked out for whatever holiday it is, or you can label yourself, I'm the silly sock guy. I, I love wearing silly socks to the office. Well, your actual identity is really just consumerist. You're the consumerist guy who likes to go and buy new things. So a little bit more of this mob mentality, which is how most of us wind up living our lives, just thinking in the preordained, the cable package of ideas they give you in school and mainstream media. Nah, bitch, opt for the ultimate package. Get this Nick's nonfiction premium knowledge don't go through with this preloaded sim card that they're trying to give you there's this thing called the power of moral envy david keeps talking about and it's not just envying what someone else has but what your supervisor is seen as being more noble than you so it's one thing that we've established that your mid-level manager 
doesn't actually do any work and gets to yell at you and assert their dominance over you but your family thinks that this mid-level manager is more noble and more of a grinder than you just because they got to this position quicker than you are and they don't actually do anything more and even if you are willing to admit that or not it's very subconsciously grinding to see somebody else get the success for the work that you are also or only putting in and transitioning into the ubi where a lot of this chapter takes place David talks about how class mobility is decreasing in America. As I said before, we're going to be the first generation to be less successful than our parents. And people can't afford to put themselves in New York or San Francisco during those requisite years of unpaid internships. So a 22-year-old used to be able to live in Denver for $400 a month and take an unpaid internship. I've been going to some interviews for internships where they're asking for 15 hours a week unpaid for six months. Dude, what the hell is that? And like I go and uh, tour some of these radio stations and you just see there's other college students sitting around. Nobody's doing anything. And it's like, what are you going to go to live in these cities where it costs too much to live to not be paid for 15 hours a week when the new value isn't really experience, but I'm banking on it's going to be clout. People are getting hired for things based on their followers and all that type of stuff, and especially in the industry that I like to be a part of. But yeah, you can't in these formidable years of your life the 20s to get situated into an industry that you would like to work in the reason we're going to be less successful than our parents is because the economy has been so fucked that you can't live in these places with a full-time service job let alone a full-time service job with an unpaid internship on top of that it's a whole world of hurt and in reality you could really use those 15 hours a week to work on a show of your own People, go jump on the hairy shit train. We're at 6,000 followers as of this month. Communities get bigger. People are loving it. And the ability to create a community is bigger than any sort of just product that you're able to push right now. So that's my personal bullshit job of a life. David takes his final shots at the military here in the last chapter. He had to get one more good swing on him. He says how for the right-wing populace, military members are the ultimate good guys. You know, you always have to say thank you for your service and shit like that. And then for the left wing, Hollywood are the ultimate good guys or universities, lawyers, journalists, medical establishments. And the dumb right, so like the rednecks out there, are, uh, you know, the ivory castle, universities, lawyers, um, Hollywood as looking down on them as the populace. Hollywood wouldn't even exist for the free market if it wasn't for the hottest girl in every one of their hometowns leaving to go to hollywood there wouldn't be no hollywood and now the current hollywood is just second and third generation of those people it's just nepotism and that's why new york has just as big of an enter entertainment industry as la there's a big enough market for it now as well that's my view of those two wings but david's point was that the military is a haven for trusted altruists so people that think that they are doing good with themselves and want to add value to the country i don't think like call me the pr for america real quick in this example i don't think you're adding value to a country when we go to the middle east and cause drone collateral damages that are 80 percent not the target it's just women and children i don't think that adds value to america as a country but the people that are joining the military by and large think they are adding value to our country so it is a noble act and david had people who were writing in from the military to write this book obviously not as many because the illusion is much greater in the military where you are serving a mission
And in all these accounts, David was able to find that military members described the parts of their service that they valued most as the Peace Corps. Also, uh, examples from the Twitter, the days that people value most in their office throughout the year are the volunteer days when you guys go take a field trip and go help out at your local pantry or go help out in an elderly home. People are like, wow, we have a great group of people here, but we just actually did something of value today. And what the military describes as their favorite days is what the Peace Corps does, which is like going to other countries' bases and socializing and seeing how they live. That's the Peace Corps. Whereas, you know, our armed forces, we're going to Venezuela now, people. Yeah, that's a, what is this, people? What is this? I'm going to be able to say in 10 years when I'm doing this show, what were we doing going into Venezuela? Obviously, it's an oil-rich country on our half of the world. And we are an empire, so we're going to go take their shit. But this is me talking into a mic right now, 2018. This is what the American military does. We unleash the chaos of the market, which destabilizes lives. And then the military offering is the best available career path. And then people have to join that and are brainwashed into thinking the mission is the right thing to do. The only tweak to the First Amendment, the freedom of speech, is the clause you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. That came from a 1900 court case where they were yelling at a guy for handing out anti-World War I pamphlets. He was saying, hey, dude, you know we really shouldn't be involved in this European war. Here's a pamphlet. This guy was sent to jail, and he was able to appeal that all the way up to the Supreme Court. So what I'm saying right now about us invading Venezuela is pretty damn similar, people. What are we doing? So yeah, the military being offered as the only viable career path kind of ties to the socialist aspects of the military before. And in any socialist organization, you're going to realize there's a lot of bullshit jobs. Let's look at this with a completely objective eye. The Nazis were the only people who had the balls to call themselves the National Socialists. Socialism and nationalism are basically the same thing already. And since when have Democrats wanted to go to war in American history, except for when Donald Trump wants to pull out of Syria? And now Trump is corrupt as well, and he's planning on starting this war in Venezuela. So I kind of, that hurt my view of this guy as an independent agent, and I am losing a lot of trust in the fact that the president actually holds any power. But there's no more this past week, so let's keep talking about bullshit jobs here. Because I'm going to just keep getting angrier and angrier when I get into these things about where's my America, you know? Where did all the freedom go? Where did a non-interventionist country where you have a free market and freedom of speech go? It's all just deteriorating, and that makes me sad, so let's skip over it. Ending uh, David Graeber's final words on the military, we were talking about value, and some people value different things with their life. I was talking to my manager recently, and we were talking about one of our new hires, and it's just some probably how people talk about me in my low-level job, just like, hey, this guy seems like he actually has <laughs> fucking potential. Why isn't he giving us 100% of his energy every day? And it's like, what does this person value? We were saying... Obviously, this guy isn't motivated by money. Like, you can work a million places if you're just working for a paycheck. And so with marine recruiters, a lot of their, like, the currency for the military is sacrifice. And you're being told you're making such a big sacrifice. Make this sacrifice for your squad. Sacrifice, sacrifice. There are different types of values that you can use to corrupt the thoughts of people. And like I say before, and I say it commonly, I guess this is one of my tropes. When you record a show, you find out more about yourself. The more you realize that you're being in a game and you might be being played, the better you can do to extract yourself from that and view it from the outside and formulate a plan as to where you want to go from there. 
but yeah what do you value uh, obviously these a lot of the people that enter the military aren't valuing socialism they're valuing sacrifice they're valuing honor and that's why it's such an admirable thing puritanism that's the word i was looking for where you can't stand the fact that somewhere someone else is happy that's not even going to be relevant anymore <laughs> all right let's move on and this is pretty much finishing up bullshit jobs so without a paycheck how would we indulge in all these new services and products that automation is going to give to us so you know um, they say 30 million truck drivers are going to be out of work within the next couple of decades but how are all these goods that are being delivered by robots going to be purchased if all these people are out of work this was an argument in the English Highlands when the cotton gin came around. People were like, we're going to put out 30% of our farmers because this machine can automate all of our work and we're going to have nothing to do. And they did it anyway. They bought the cotton gin over to Europe and put their people out of work. Look at that. We're still here. Life goes on. People figure out shit to do. So don't waste everybody's time is my point there. And this thing that happened in the 1800s is the same thing that's happening right now. Automation of driving. These people are going to have to find other things to do. It sucks. If this was nature, you would die. This is human evolution and the perks to living in a society. You could go find something else to do, people. As I said, the end of the book here is talking more about theory. And David extrapolates here into some pretty interesting thoughts. I like this part, so I'm just going to float this through the commonplace of ideas here. The mainstream left controls the production of humans now, David was arguing. And I think that's true because the left wing is in control of the media. They have the whole, you know, Me Too movement going around, social issues. I go to this bookshop. I live by a high school as well. So if I go, like, during lunchtime, there's all these kids at the bookshop, and they're having lunch, and they're talking about their homework, trying to knock out their homework before they go home at the end of the day. Classic high schooler move. But the assignments that these kids are given are weird it's like a rewrite the second amendment or the things the kids are even talking about because yeah i'm an eavesdropper i'll listen in there like did you see what was on jenny's story the other day there was like a, a swastika and i i heard her parents found her drug stash and she's just like not in a good place i think she's just tr tr trying to cry out for attention and it's like this is not how me and my friends talked we were just trying to make each other laugh and calling each other faggots <laughs> these kids are being brainwashed into thinking the me too movement is a real thing not just some counter operation hate to break it to you you think some kid in his basement actually came up with me too or it's actually hollywood and some deep state trying to orchestrate the political field at the moment what do you honestly think is more probable do you think it's some kid who came up with it or it the fact that every single news organization hopped on on the same week is a coincidence how stupid do they think we are we're not dumb people. Keep tuning into Nick's nonfiction when you want the truth. But yeah, the kids are talking about these weird things now, and that's because mainstream left controls the production of humans. And then Boeing and Raytheon, obviously the right is in control of the means of production, which is America produces weapons. We don't make other things. And then we have another quote. There was another example of an NGO lady, this one from the UK, and she held that same position about keeping homeless people on the streets, trying to make it harder for them to access funds. These funds are already there for the poor people, but this bullshit job is there. This lady, this NGO in the UK was there to make sure it was harder for them to get the funds that they were applying for. And 20% of those who applied gave up and wound up not actually getting the funding they needed these are the types of people who actually need help quitters need help i'm just saying this all in the david gravener approach and how our systems of welfare get to people quitters are the people who never wind up doing anything with their life you know 
90% of minimum wage jobs get a raise within the first year. That's why the whole minimum wage argument is orchestrated by the mainstream media. If you actually are not a quitter and can stay in a job for more than two months long, you're probably going to get a raise. This, the whole minimum wage argument is bullshit. And when we talk about economics like this book today, you realize that it's about value. It's not about giving everybody $15. Of, it's about is their job creating value? And f at least 40% of jobs in society right now are bullshit. So yeah, this NGO in the UK, her job is to make sure that these quitters keep on failing. <laughs> Here was an interesting point too as well. We'll move along a little bit because we, we already covered that in the previous chapter the lady she shouldn't have a job her job is making other people's lives hell it's a shit job david talks about how since the 70s women have entered the workplace under the guise of feminism you know men control all the wealth you're forcing us on the polls we uh we need more power welcome to the workplace bitches if you want in on this shit be my guest david's point was with such an influx in the workplace in the 70s managerialism grew <laughs> and because of that over this past half decade working class men's wages have fallen you're not going to hear this one from the men and you're definitely not going to hear this on cnn but coal miners construction working men their wages have gone down because there's more money that's in the uh, managerial positions of these construction companies, oil rigs, whatever it may be. And this is where women flooded the workplace and then value goes down because there's more supply, less demand. I have nothing against women. I think you're stupid for wanting to join the workforce, but welcome. <laughs> Obviously a joke. I don't know if this is an act, but people are like, I can't believe Donald Trump got elected. Where are all these racists hiding? But legitimate facts like this, the fact that working men's wages are going down, that's enough to fucking change the course of a society. This is where the money is coming from. This is where the wealth is getting extracted from. This is how people like him get elected. For worse, usually, or for better. It's looking like worse now that we're invading Venezuela. And then the mainstream media, like I was saying before. The mainstream media, as soon as... um. They're saying coal miners are going to be put out of work. Remember when CNN puts out the learn to code stories? They're telling coal miners to learn how to code. That's the how fucking disrespectful are you, man? That's not looking after your fellow American. It's just if I told women you have to meet the same physical standards as a warehouse worker of the men, I'd, I'd get told I'm a racist. But if you tell a man that's been mining coal for all of us to be able to heat our houses that he has to learn how to code, that's fair game. And this seems to be why the controlled media is double downing on this like third wave of feminism. That's what it's called. Third wave feminists. All these whales running around telling me that I'm body shaming people because I actually work out. Nah, bitch. I just have body dysmorphia and I'm too insecure to walk around with a gut as big as yours. <laughs> and even Obama jumps on ship when, and that's how you could tell these things are fake. Obama's denouncing the wage gap, seven to $10 men to women wake. And that's just because women are taking more of the bullshit jobs men are out on these oil rigs or doing construction or things that get paid slightly more than preschool teachers which a lot of women are going into education now all of academia is mostly women even the higher up levels if you want to be a professor you literally have to spend your entire life in a classroom a lot of women are doing that and spending your life on an oil rig will make you a lot more money so that whole wage gap thing is of all the money men make and of all the money women make men make 0.21% more than women make because of what we choose to do with our time. 
And so this will bring us into UBI. If we had a UBI, none of this would be an issue. The UBI is just saying like, okay, every adult in America, you just get $12,000 a year. Okay, you can pay for your groceries, you can pay for your rent, fuck off after that. We're going to throw you in jail if you do something bad. The government isn't looking after you for your taxes. Actually, yeah, of course we're getting taxes. That's not going anywhere, people. They're going to take our money. I'll ease you guys into this argument because a lot of people just see this as socialism. You know, we're giving people free money for doing nothing. I see it as taking care of people and you should want to take care of your fellow man. So let me lube you guys up for this idea. (laughs) Foster children programs in America cost around $2,000 a month. But if you just gave that money, that $2,000 to the mom and the dad we wouldn't have this problem to begin with. It's like the abortion issue. After Roe versus Wade passed and abortions were legal, the following decade, crime nearly fell in half. Violent crime fell in half. It's because these poor moms were able to get abortions and they weren't birthing kids into these fucked up situations where they're poor and have to sell drugs for a living. Same thing with the UBI. If people get this $12,000 a year to wear condoms and stay off the streets, then we're going to have a lot less of these problems within a decade's time. It'll pay off a couple times over. In that example of the foster kid programs cost two grand a month. And then there's all these organizations that have to monitor the foster care programs that look over that. And that creates second and third degree bullshit jobs down the bureaucracy line as well. Again, we're wasting so much more money there. So you see, we would solve more problems with UBI than it would create down the road. Like I've been bringing up that office meme. Some people do all the work. Some people do no work in your office. These compulsive workaholics are going to compensate for the occasional slackers in this situation. Look at it right now. I talked about the billionaires today. There's 600 billionaires in America, and they pay 45% of all the tax money. All of our taxes basically come from these 600 people. We're not doing shit. It's the people with all the money. And, I mean, everybody's getting raped for no reason. I'm about to lose it, man. I'm I'm getting triggered. The point is, even in this crazy-ass backwards 1% of the people pay 45% of the money that we have now it still evens itself out so like lefties like to say we could all wake up tomorrow and make the world as different as we want it to be with no hate no controversy whatever everybody could fucking wake up tomorrow and this could just be our new form of government I broke down the numbers before it's completely affordable if we were to restart the system today it would be difficult to have it wind up how it does now where one percent of the people own 50 percent of the wealth so any sort of action we actually take to try to correct this thing will be better than just sitting around and electing a new schmuck every four years to pretend they're going to make a difference one of my favorite points about this book and comparisons that david graber made was how holding a current job is like a bdsm routine of humiliation and praise or whatever those freaks do (laughs) and The point of the UBI is that it would finally allow all of us to have our safe word. We could all say, Montana, when we have the fifth anal beat up our ass, you have a safe word. You can finally say, hey boss, I quit. You didn't tell me I had these responsibilities when I was hired a month ago, and now you're telling me to do all this? Piss off, I quit. The UBI would give you that $12,000 to not be a slave to somebody where you don't have to fake smile at them because they're in control of your finances. You are actually in control of your own destiny here. And you know what? The $12,000 that we're given out a year, that just becomes the new zero. It's like when I get that $12,000 every year, I'm not just going to want to make $12,000. I'm still going to want to make another 
60k on top of that you know what i'm saying it, it that just becomes the new zero but the new zero is that people are taken care of so this would mean that we finally have our safe word millions of people with a universal basic income can realize their situation is them being trapped in dogma somebody else's thoughts got you in the situation you are in today go to school get your degree work for this company until they start paying you a livable wage my favorite quote from steve jobs don't be trapped by dogma you'll be living through the ideas that somebody else created if we all wake up tomorrow with this knowledge we can choose to change the world as you can tell by my level of preachiness, we are approaching the end of the show. The point of this book, one of my biggest takeaways, is value. So what do you value? You're making your $12,000 off the universal basic income. What do you value? Do you value freedom? Because if you value freedom, you probably won't take a full-time job and you'll go and try to create something in this world or go visit all of the national parks and beauty that this earth has for us to behold. You're going to travel. You can broaden your horizons and bring amazing things back to your homeland. Maybe you value money in life. And so you can take your $12,000 and you can take that over to New York City or San Francisco. And now that you're in your 20s and you can actually afford to do that fucking internship. Maybe you value religion. So take your $12,000 and go try to start a church. Maybe you start a cult and a hippie commune. <laughs> Yo, now we're thinking maybe I get a bunch of other people to give me their $12,000 and I start my own commune. Oh my God, bro. All right. Universal and basic income is off the table because people are too stupid and they're going to be giving away their $12,000. <laughs> but for real, religion, you can pursue religion. You oh my God. Bill Gates, this guy has more money than imaginable, and you think he's going to turn into some Lex Luthor just because he has the most power and men are evil? No, he's curing malaria. Bill Gates, a man, is curing malaria, the disease that has killed more human beings than every war combined. This man is curing that disease because he has all this spare time and money to do actual research with. It's not people aren't going to go evil when they have this spare time and money. So what else would you do with your UBI? Sports. We're going to have a bunch of other people who are, oh my God, imagine how good looking America would be. People would be at the gym all fucking day. We'd be a bunch of, <laughs> we'd be a bunch of well sculpted masterpieces in this country. We'd all be banging each other for fun. I don't know, man. That was going to be our would you rather for the day. The would you rather was if you had to be obsessed with money, religion, sports, sex, or food, what would you pick? There's obviously pluses and minuses to all of them with a bunch of jokes I had to go along, but maybe we'll save that to another time because this episode ran longer than I was expecting. It's a dense book. It has really cool ideas to unpackage, and I'm sure you guys got a much better idea of where I stand on a lot of issues throughout today's show as well. So to wrap up David Graeber's final thoughts in the final chapter about the universal basic income, work for what you value. Don't just work for a fucking paycheck because you will dig yourself into a psychological hole where you hate what you're doing and you hate your life and you don't know what to do. So follow what you love. If you love truth, if you love the giggle, if you love YouTube videos, maybe you found yourself at Nick's nonfiction podcast. And I hope you guys have a lot to take home from David Graeber's international bestseller, Bullshit Jobs, a theory. I could definitely see myself reading one of his other books as a review in the future. Good author. Some disagreements here and there, but hey, if I agreed with every single thing in the book, I'd be a little creeped out thinking that maybe it was me that wrote it. Next month, we're going to be going over Matthew Walker. His book, Why We Sleep, is going to be more factual. You guys are going to learn how to get a good night's rest. And that's going to do it for us in March. 
Thank you all for tuning in so much. I really do appreciate you all. Get at me, comments, compliments, criticisms. Send that over my way, nmunas at udel.edu. Go check out Harry Schwann. It's growing. Funny content every night. You guys are going to love it over there if you love it here. And vice versa. Welcome to Nick's Nonfiction. This thing isn't going anywhere. <laughs> I am your monthly period to bring it full circle. Yeah, Uncle Flo. That would be my rap name. Uncle Flo on the beat. Here to murder your dome. Gonna spit some crazy facts that you all could take home. Look at that shit. I should just start a rap album. <laughs> Fuck the podcast. I'm just playing all of you. Thank you very much for tuning in again. I will see you all in April for Why We Sleep, Matthew Walker. Peace. <laughs>